Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and as always, I'm joined by Julian Darius. Julian, how are you doing? You okay? I think I got caught in the mountain. <laughs> you got I'm trapped. Okay. Yeah. You got trapped in the eighth dimension. That's right. Yeah. That's, I'm, where, I'm, that's my home my home planet is the tenth planet. So I'm I'm just here to explain the watermelon. That's my <laughs> Yes, I, I was wondering about that. That's <laughs> that's on my list of things I don't understand. Okay, How are you doing, Scott? I'm good, thank you. I'm very good. Uh, for those that may not have sort of got the references there or know what we're talking about, we're going to be talking about a film about some alien beings, two factions from the same planet coming to ours to fight their battle and uh, being directed by, you know, intervened by Earthlings. And it's not Transformers. I was just no. going to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we are going to be talking about uh, the 1984 film, uh, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Through the Eighth Dimension. Um, this is a favourite of mine, uh, and this, Julian, this was the first time for you, and so really, let's, let's get into that, because I've, I've got, obviously, I'll be, I'll be voicing my opinions later, but what were, you, what were your initial thoughts then, coming at this for the first time? Well, I mean, I will say my first impressions were, I really enjoyed uh, the remake of this better than the original, uh, I mean, Back to the Future is a great movie, Um <laughs> You know, it is so clear that Back to the Future takes so much, especially from those first like 15 minutes or so, um, you know, with the car, the streaks mm-hmm. disappearing, you know, the weird contraption that makes this possible um, and a portal shooting out of the car. I mean, um, well, it even took um, Christopher Lloyd, it even took Christopher. Lloyd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so as time went on, I thought I I always admire weird movies. I admire, you know, sort of just the the balls it takes to make some of these movies that don't make sense. And I'm a big admirer of Ed Wood. Having said that, I think by the end of the movie, I wound up thinking um, there's a lot wrong with this movie. And it's not enjoyable to me. It's it's the (laughs) ultimate takeaway that I decided was like my my tagline. So, so explain to me how I'm wrong. You know, explain, no, or explain to me I, your love. I don't think you are wrong. This film is very flawed. Um, and it's, it's, you know, some of its flaws are almost, almost intentional. Others, I think, come from uh, budget and, and other bits and pieces, some storytelling stuff. I, I, don't, I, I love this film because um, it, the weirdness is, is a is, is a big factor. Like it, it, it clearly doesn't care, you know, that the intention is sort of like, you know, no, you're going to drop in and you're going to just follow the adventures of this this guy and his crew, uh, Bukaroo Bonsai and the uh, um, uh, the Cavaliers. And it's like beyond that, like the plot is almost irrelevant, <laughs> you know, with the, the sort of like the the red electroids and the black electroids and 
you know, Dr. Lazardo, like it's almost irrelevant. It's because this is just it's a, it's almost like set pieces sort of kind of stuff, isn't it? It's there to be like it's just that little bit weirder. Like, you know, right, this scene's now gonna be slightly weirder than the next one. Like, you know, there feels like there's a Terry Gilliam influence on this film. You know, like there's yeah. a, there's a, there's a there's a a feel of like Brazil to it to, for me. Um, but the other thing as well is I, I love it as a sort of it comes in eighty four, and it, it wants to sort of have a commentary on not quite action heroes because action heroes hadn't really been around that point, but it's sort of it, it's jumping back into the pulp heroes narrative, and so. This thing of the early the early eighties where pulp heroes had come back, sort of like you know, this film's clearly got somebody who wants to sort of say a little bit about Star Wars, um, you know, Indiana Jones, these kinds of characters, you know, Bonds uh, Bukaru is clearly like um, Doc Savage, you know, and his crew, um, and, and so I, don't know, I just there's just something about it, like you just go yeah no it's just a fun adventure like it's just a silly 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 adventure, um, and you know. I love the fact that this isn't the first one. Like, this isn't an origin story. Right. There's yeah. barely... A, it, although, having said that, there's a deleted... And I watched it because I hadn't seen it for a while, but there's a deleted uh, opening to this film that's on the disc I've got. And it's actually the, sort of like... Almost like a, a, a Bukaru Bonsai origin story. And it may, it works better with the opening of the film. So the opening film you probably saw is it says Bukaru Bonsai... Uh, and the adventures across the dimension, and it pans across like a bunch of sandbags, and then it goes into the thing with the um, the booster car, um, yeah. and you know, then he does his experiment. Well, before that, it goes back to um, 1958, and you see his parents being doing trying to attempt the exact same experiment he's about to attempt in 58, but they both get killed, um, and so it's taking place at the same location. And uh, weirdly, Jamie Lee Curtis plays his mum. Uh, <laughs> um, and so it, it gives you this note of, you know, you learn why he was called Bukaru Banzai because his dad is Japanese, but wanted to have an American name. And he felt that Bukaru was was suitable. <laughs> so um, it has all these little, you know, which again, it goes back to this idea of Dark Savage, this thing of being influenced yeah. by the parents and all this other stuff. So I don't know, there's just something about this film I really enjoy digging into. It's this film that's like you it's a film you can enjoy digging into because of all the silliness in it. Like, you know, Penny Pretty is another example. Like, you know, it's not, it's, it's revealed, but not really revealed that she's the twin sister of Of his his dead wife. Dead wife. And they didn't know they were twin sisters. And it's mentioned in like a bit of dialogue later as he's taking a break from fighting aliens. Yeah. But like literally that, you know, it's also true that his wife who was the queen of the Netherlands, was killed by his big nemesis, uh, Zan Chi, I think his name is, who's clearly like a parody of um, Dr. Fu Manchu. And mm-hmm. so there's all these little nuggets from like, oh, and then pull on that, pull on that, you know, sort of thing. So it's that. It's more of like an Easter egg film, you know, and fun little n- nods. Like this is, no, this, this is book four, or book, even maybe more, this could yeah. be like book 14 of a series of, of, a series of adventures of Bukaru Banzai. Yeah, it does have that kind of feel, um, you know, and, and I think you make it sound like much cooler than my experience watching it was, <laughs> um, you know, another of my first impressions is, boy, uh, Peter Weller is the wrong casting choice. Um, he looks 
you know, he looks like he's 50. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that entire, like, so much of this movie depends on you thinking that him and his squad are cool. Yeah. And I never once think that they're cool. Um, I mean, he, he managed to, to make Michael J. Fox playing a guitar look super realistic, you know, like, I mean, they, and you know, even the fashion, like, you know, there's that, you know, that cut at the end over the credits as they're all joined and whatever, you know, that's been sort of influential. Mm. Um, you know, even then I, I admire the fact that there are like just shots of their body parts, you know, it's like, it's. MTV, it's, you know, the clothes are as important as the people. I like that kind of stuff, except the clothes aren't good. <laughs> like, the, the, there's no, it's like, I don't know. It's like, you know, I mean, the most interesting thing is like the the, the white 80s giant oversized jacket. Perfect, that Tommy, yeah. The yeah. Like, you know, I, I dig that. But I mean, mostly, you know, I, I, so he they seem old. They don't seem cool. They don't seem like people who I met on the street. I'd be like, oh, who's that? Buckaroo Bob. I'd be like, who's that, you know, dweeby guy in his, you know. I agree. I think this is the thing. And this is the difference between then and now. Um, and I, yes. so I totally agree. I think Peter Weller is totally miscast. Um, I like the rest of the cast. I like the fact the rest of the cast are so different. Um, you know, Clancy Brown as Rawhide. Firstly, like Clancy Brown's calling anything, like, you know, um, soon would become uh, the Kurgan in Highlander. So that was my real first introduction to him. But like um, Jeff Goldblum, this is like uh, this is the earliest Jeff Goldblum I know, I think. And he's still Jeff Goldblum. Like he's still like, you know, weird and affable and, and nice. And like, I love the fact that he's a doctor. So when they tell him to turn up to become part of this band, like he turns up dressed as a cowboy in chaps, like woolen chaps. <laughs> And they're, they're all a bit, they all start taking, they, they are having pops at him. Um, so I do like the cast, but Peter Weller d- d- doesn't act as an anchor to this film. That, that I completely agree with. Especially in 84, when you have got larger than live action heroes coming out of the woodwork. I mean, at this point, you've already got like, you know, Schwarzenegger and Stallone. Not saying I'd want someone that big or that bombastic, but you need someone with charisma, with real gravitas and charisma to, so for you to go. Yeah, I completely buy that that person is um, a scientist, brain surgeon, musician, adventurer. You know, it's you've got to have that um, twinkle in the eye for you to be able to believe all that. And I think Peter Weller sometimes comes across too sort of po-faced in this role, too self-serious. And he's like that. I mean, you know, if you ever hear, if you ever listen to or even see any of the sort of um, special behind the scenes stuff for, for robocop how he took mm-hmm. sort of like ballet lessons and interpretive dance lessons to be able to move like robocop which none of worked by the way because he did he, he did all of that without the suit and then he put the suit on and realized right. he couldn't do any of it um <laughs> but that's besides the point we'll get to that one day um yeah i don't know that's the, the he is the one flaw in this film for me is is weller because it, it sort of doesn't work however i do feel he's balanced out by everybody else i'm thinking that's the one flaw is it from a casting standpoint? I love John Lithgow in this film. Like John Lithgow, oh. to me, is is just like so I let's love talk John about Lithgow. Lithgow. I mean, I yeah. I like John Lithgow. I you know I'm happy when I see Lithgow, um, and I remember him from the '80s quite fondly. Mm. Boy, is he you know like this is 
I guess what this prefigures like third rock from the yes. sun, you yeah. know, but like he, okay. He's hamming it up. Right. Mm. But I don't think it works. I mean, like he, when he gives the Hitler esque speech, you know, and he's like, get his body, yeah. you know, I, you know, I think, yeah. I mean, there, there's a version of this that would work, but He's so I you know I know he he's supposed to be like adapting to the Earth's climate or something, but like I don't no, know. It's, no, it's, it's so not really. Yeah, again, there's bits missing because the thing is I've read the novelization and there are totally bits missing out of this film. So Doctor Lazardo in the book, like it's a split personality. They are constantly fighting for control of the body, um, and when he's in this hospital at the beginning, he is Doctor Lazardo because he's on medication. Um, and so there's a moment when he actually uh, something happens and he doesn't get his medication. And that that time when he electrocutes himself amplifies or nullifies the medication to allow um, John Warfarin to take over. That's sort of so in the book. That's the point of that. It's just a silly moment in the film. Um, what other personality is he fighting with? So there's two. So in 1938, when you see that experiment and you see the flashback later in the film, and it's, mm-hmm. that's Dr. Lazardo. OK, so Dr. Lazardo is a human and Dr. Lazardo is fired at that wall. And you, you have um, Dr. I forget his name, the, the Japanese guy. He's going, no, 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 no. And when he goes through the wall, you see all the electrodes in the eighth dimension are pouring at him and all that sort of thing. In that moment, one of them, John Warfen transfers his consciousness into Dr. Lazardo. So Dr. Lazardo is now uh, populated by Dr. Lazardo I and totally John did not get that. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's not clear in the film. So the fact is that, that there are there are two personalities in there. So that electrocuting stuff when he puts his zaps his ears and his tongue and stuff is him making sure he stays in control and that's when he escapes from the hospital. And it's that overthrust it's this sort of the oscillation oscillation overthruster is what triggers it because he's like They've perfected the technology which allowed him to escape um, the eighth dimensions, and now he can take that technology and, and get his brethren out. However, like you know, there's, there's clearly others actually in our dimension that have just travelled to Earth, which is Christopher Lloyd uh, and, and um, Tom Noonan and all this other stuff. So you to, you to bring their race war here. Yes, literally, <laughs> literal race war. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that's the thing. But that, that speech he gives later on, uh, there's something I love about that because he is a, he was their dictator. He was the leader of the, the black electroids, the bad electroids. And so. No, no, he, the red ones. The red, sorry, the red electroids. Yeah, the yeah. black ones are the good guy. That's true. Oh, sorry, once. yes. Yeah, yeah. Even if they're portrayed as like Jamaican, you know. <laughs> John, John Parker, yeah. Um, that's problematic, but it's still, I kind of yeah. like it. He has a really cool suit. It, it's daft. Um, you know, and problematic, yeah. but it, it, it's kind of cool to have some Rastas, you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's weird. But that thing is like, it's, I love the fact that like he's been trapped away for like since the 38. So it's 50 years. This film sort of, you know, suggests because you forget this is obviously 84. I kept forgetting the time frame. So it's been 50 years. And so when he gives that speech at um, uh, Yo-Yo Dying Proportions, um, and he's given it, it's supposed to be like a Mussolini. He's going for that sort of like, you know, the big sort of like gestures and all sort other of stuff. He thinks that everyone's going to be behind him. And he's all into it. He's all sort of like, I'm taking over. This is the revolution. We're going to take out the 10th planet back. And everyone else is just like, yeah, 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 woo. And I love the fact that that, that overacting to me is sort of like, he's still struggling to control his body, but he's 
trying to give this really massive rousing speech that he thinks everyone's going to be sort of like, you know, he thinks he's going to be like some first order kind of speech and everyone's going to be like, you know, Zikheil! And everyone's just like, yay! So they're all they're all done with it. They're all past it. It's, it's only him now that's driving this. Um, especially when I you didn't see pick the- up on that either. I mean, you know, because mm. sometimes you have to wonder like, okay, what was the budget here? You know, what were the concerns when they shot this? Seemed to me like they were into it. I didn't, you know... I mean, they're, they know what to say. It's like, when are we going to get there? Soon, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, well, they know they know the call and response, right? They know the script. Um, but, then, but none of them are really paying attention. Like They're all in different yeah. places around the factory. Uh, and it keeps cutting back to um, uh, the one played by Christopher Lloyd, who's just sat there, like, his head in his yeah. hands. He's like, what is going Big on? Big booty. Big booty, yeah, John, uh, John Boutet. Yeah, Big Boutet. Um uh, so he's just got his hands, his head in his hands, and he's like, you know, like, because they didn't want him. To, they, they've been just getting on with things. They've just been living on planet Earth quite happily. Um, and again, like, what's not made clear is they go to the, they are, they've gone to the pre- presentation about the oscillation overthruster. Um, they're because they're investigating it of their own accord. Because they're like, oh, okay, we could be getting our people out, but it's it's only then that. John Warfarin comes out and basically buggers up their plans. So n- no one wants him around. He's just a mm-hmm. he's just a distraction. Um, so yeah, it's 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 this thing of like there's so much there, but it's not <laughs> it's not it's not clear. It takes multiple viewings. Like it, the first call, I, I've watched this set you know quite a few times now, and you do I do pick up bits and pieces as I go along when I've watched it. And I've gone, oh okay, I didn't quite get that before, or like you know I, I think I understand this scene better now um so yeah <laughs> okay so so help me with another question um uh-huh. <laughs> you know i mean the eighth dimension is in the title and mm-hmm. you know it, it apparently it has to do with the space between mm-hmm. atoms mm-hmm. um you know which okay this is fine you know i mean that is what it is it's actually not bad as as movie science goes um but these aliens are on the 10th planet. A spaceship lands. Why do they need to go into the eighth dimension? Why is the eighth dimension a part of this plot at all? Okay. So there, there was a war. Uh, John Warfram was the leader of this, this, this red lectoid revolution. And they were and banished he, like the phantom zone. They exactly. So the eighth dimension is like their phantom zone. So all these sort of basically they were given a choice become join the goodies or you are banished. And so at some point in the history, these red lectoids were banished to the eighth dimension um, on Earth. That's, you know, so as far away from the sort of, you know, from the 10th planet as possible. But in doing so, at the same time, a bunch of red lectoids that didn't want to get banished fled um, the 10th planet and actually went to Earth. Um, and so they've been living there, you know, hiding under the sort of the banner of yo-yo dying solutions since the 30s. Because um, what you you hear is uh, it's part it's sort of part of the plot. It's mentioned that the, <laughs> the, the Orson Welles. Um, oh yes. In, invasion, you know, the, the uh, hoax in 1938 um, wasn't. It was you know it was played as a radio play. They say no, no, it actually was a warning. But then he was told to sort of say no, no, it was a hoax. Was and what that warning? Yes. And what it actually was was the red lectoids coming to Earth. To, right. to follow up these people because they, you know, um, so to, but they were coming physically without using 
Eighth dimension. Yes, because they were they were sort of like refugees. They were running from being sent to the eighth dimension because others had already been sent to the eighth dimension. So there's, there's like a massive like political plot behind all this. Yeah. It's never fully explained. Like it's sort of there, but you've got to really sort of pick away at it. So like yeah, so John Big Boutet and the others, um, you know, John Smallberries and and all those others, they're all sort of imagine Nazis hiding in Brazil, right. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. They've, they've run away and escaped being sent to the eighth dimension. Okay, so... Right, so the point at the end of getting the uh, oscillator over... Overthruster. Yeah. Overthruster is <laughs> not to be able to take off, and but but that will allow them, in theory... I mean, it seems like it's used as a device that lets them take off and get back to the 10th planet and conquer it. But it, in fact, it's a device that would, I mean, as established, it would allow you to go into the 8th dimension. Yes. Is the idea that they're going to then escape into the atmosphere and then in the atmosphere rescue that their really, people no, from think, the 8th dimension? No, I, I think that they're, they're planning on going back to the 10th planet with the overthruster to then access the eighth dimension and bring out all the loyalists to um, John Warfen. That, that bit's a bit unclear. Cause to me, I've always been like, just release them all on earth right. <laughs> and then fly and then fly back. Um, but you know, that, that, the, the point is that, yeah, they've got the overthruster. They want the overthruster because that allows them to open up the portal to the eighth dimension, which will get all of his armies out. And then he can take over the 10th planet again. I will say, I do like, I do like the standing water. I do yeah. like the like um, flight suit made out of flesh. Um, mm. You know, I do like some of the the you know just like weird random choices. You know, and how how just alien bizarre some of this is. I mean, there's a delight in sort of seeing a movie. You know, that just goes for it and just says, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could tell there was a meeting. You know, at which it was decided. Yeah, why isn't there uh, sort of flight suit straps, you know, instead of seatbelts, they have a fleshy thing hanging from the ceiling, you know, why yeah. not? Yeah, okay, let's go with that. That sounds more Gilliam, more bizarre, and sounds fun. I, I do like that stuff. Um, and I like the broadcast. I didn't, I didn't like the sort of Mussolini-Hitler speech, mm -hmm. but I did like the broad... I, mean, I think they could have done more with it, but I love the broadcasts that are continuously going uh, propaganda on the loop in the base. And I yes. did think that was quite fun. Yeah. It is good. I mean, there's some of the designs and sort of thoughts. So I've always taken it as well. That ship, because it's not like um, a built ship, the the uh, you know, the Letroid ship, is it's a living thing. I've always thought of it as like they're flying this sort of like, you know, they've adapted or they've, I don't know, they've sort of this living thing because it looks all fleshy inside and it had wings. The one that crash lands has wings, but then becomes like a pod and all this other stuff. Um, and I like the fact that like I said they're dedicated to the mission. That sort of like John Parker comes down with two of the people, uh, two of the electroids. <clears throat> One falls off and like cracks his head and dies. Then John Parker sort of runs for it. But there's one inside just sat there, and he gets a message, and he's like, "No, you know, you can't be captured. Um, you're gonna have to to detonate." And he's all like, "Yeah, well, all in the cause, you know," and mm -hmm. and, and and does it. So it's there's a lot more to this, but it's all in the background. Like it's clear that, that, that you know, they're trying to, um, you, you are 
the, the almost like the <clears throat> the uh, perspective character in this is um Bukaru Banzai. You know, you, you are introduced to this situation and you you follow Bukaru Banzai. But even Bukaru Banzai, at one point, he meets up with the rest of the, the, the Cavaliers. And they're trying to explain this thing about Orson Welles and stuff. And even he's like, sorry, what we were talking about Yo-Yo dying before, and what about this? Like he even he's yeah. not privy to the whole plot. Um so yeah, it's it's um it, it it's a bit it is unclear. It's a complicated plot. Oh, it is. It's overly complicated, yeah. like massively yeah. overcomplicated. And that's sort of one of the reasons I kind of like it, because it is, again, it's a bit like we've been talking about other things as well, that this is a bit of a, an F.U. You're like, you know, you, you're going to step into this, but you've got to keep up. Um, even the ending, like the ending, the, the final section of the very end of the film is they, you know, um, uh, New Jersey or Jeff Goldblum tries to bring uh, Penny back, um, but doesn't. She She dies. But then she's brought back by one of the Lectroids. And, you know, he they do something, and then it goes back to, and as he's sort of kissing, as, as, as Bookaroo is kissing her, you get this sort of thing, it's one of the Lectroids going, so what, big deal. And you're like, what? What's, like, you know, it's almost like, you know, well, we, yeah, we bring people back to life all the time. I've now taken it, well, we bring back people back all the time. What's the what's the big deal about this? Um, but, yeah, it's, it is bizarre. <laughs> It is okay, very that, bizarre. That brings to mind another one of my gripes, which is um, that the dialogue is like written by somebody who English is clearly not their first language. OK, so like every time, you know, like, you know, for example, they'll talk to Buckaroo and they'll, they'll say like, oh, we've got to do this. And he'll say um, something like, oh, is that all? Oh, but he'll say it in some weird way where like a word's wrong. Right. So mm. like. Oh, all is oh, all that. Period. What the hell does that mean? Does that yeah. mean a yes or a no? It clearly means a yes in a movie, but it's like that's not what he's saying. I kind of get from the the. I mean, the 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 language is just constantly a little off in a weird way. No, I, I agree with that. And again, I think they're trying to tap into. I, I don't know. There's a weird thing about they're trying to tap into '30s pulp ideals i've read quite a few uh doc savages and stuff and it feels it does have that feel to in that in that way of like they're you know they're, they're trying to almost make they want to make bookaroo slightly alien like he's slightly separated from everybody you know he's so above everybody and they keep trying to do it by doing certain things like just just saying you know he's a he's a rock star a brain surgeon adventurer like isn't enough like you know they're like oh, we've got to make him slightly different in these ways and it doesn't all yeah it, it doesn't work and again I, I i wonder like you say it's the dialogue fine but if you had the right again if this the casting was better hmm. and you had someone with that charisma like it wouldn't be a problem because they'd be able to pull it all off with a twinkle in their eye the delivery would probably be that little bit more um you need someone with a bit of cheese you know what i mean that's someone who's got a bit of a and also, I'd say you need someone who's a bit of a beefcake. Like Paul Weller, like I say, looks, he's too small to play this kind of character. Um, I, I don't know who would replace him within the 80s at this point. Um, but yeah, it's. It, it, he... So, I mean, my, part of my bias there is, I, I mean, yeah, you're right. I think the whole, the whole team does not look very convincing handling guns, right? And there's even <laughs> the joke of like, you know, um, 
you know, holding it backwards, you know, which nobody would ever do to a gun. But, um, you know, I found myself thinking of, uh, you know, a movie that is also off the rails, but that I like, which is um, uh, Valerian, you know, Mm -hmm. The City of Mm -hmm. a Thousand Planets. Both of these probably might do better. Both of those probably might do better, as you pointed out, sort of like broken up as a serial. You know, I could probably follow this and be like, yeah, they're kind of forgetting the last serial a little, the last episode a little. You know, that detail's not really just important in this one. You know, Mm. the mystery of who this woman is just gets rough for a couple episodes. You know, that's kind of charming in a serial. But, uh, you know, this goes back to sort of one one of my biases is that um, as horrible as that actor is, as Valerian, he looks pretty. He looks cool. He's got that kind of je ne sais quoi where it's like, I don't believe you're a secret agent. I don't believe anything you're doing. Right. But you look good doing it. And I I would dispute none of these. Yeah, you would dispute that (laughs) with Dane DeHaan. Yeah. Okay. See, I mean, you know, I mean, you remember his name. Mm. Um, But I mean, you know, he's a pretty boy. I mean, he's Mm. Leo DiCaprio in, you know, I mean, Leo DiCaprio was a better actor, even Romeo and Juliet. But I mean, he's the young, you know, it's a young Leo DiCaprio. Maybe this is my American bias, but I can't believe, I don't know, I I want him to be pretty. I want him to be more physically attractive and Mm. younger, you know, uh, or, I mean, you could go the more grisly route and I could be sold on it, you know. you know, sort of Harrison Ford route or something like that. But I mean, none of that crew, that crew is supposed to be, he's supposed to be a rock star. He's supposed, you know, you're supposed to believe that crew is cool. And the one thing I knew about Buckaroo Banzai is like, it's supposed to be cool and fun. And I want that crew to be, you know, fashionable. I want to look at them and go, now I know the standards in the 80s, probably fortunately, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, for men and for women. None of those people could get jobs today, you know, men or women, uh, probably. But I do find myself wanting that youthful sort of pretty. I want them to look pretty. You know, I want them to look younger. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. See, I think one of the things I like about part of this is they are so different. Because it's a a literal and like quite recently we just had uh, the Suicide Squad. You know, this idea. And it's not so this I've I'm always attracted to this idea of a band of misfits. You know, like these guys are supposed to be pretty intelligent, they're all part of the, the, the Bonsai Institute. But the ones you're really into and also you don't get to meet everyone. Like there's a several point where they talk about a character that's not even there, you know. Um mm-hmm. and so the, the some of the, the key ones, the key three, I would say, of the, the Hong Kong Cavaliers in this group, apart from Bonsai, is um Rawhide. Uh, uh, perfect Tommy and Reno, and they are so you know. It, it's just, I, I can't really. I don't know the actors' names, but I love the fact that they are so different. Like Clancy Brown's like six four. The guy's like you know he's huge, but in, you know, and he's a, he's he's called Rawhide because he, he he's supposed to be a cowboy. He wears a cowboy hat once in this film, <laughs> <laughs> but he looks. I think he looks great. Perfect Tommy is one of my favorites because he's such a dick. You know, like he he's not. He's not, you know, he's supposed to be the sort of like the 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 charisma one. He's the one that gets all the ladies, yeah. but he has to be reminded several times. Like there's a moment when uh, Bonsai says to him about giving Penny his coat. He says, "Why?" He says, "Because you're perfect." He's like, "Yeah, you have a point." 
Like he had, they're not. They're just weird characters. Reno as well, sort of like this. You know, he's he's quite short, and he's you know, and then you get after Jeff Goldblum coming in as yeah. who's all is like who's whose nerd cool is even coming through then is this weird character as as New Jersey. Um, and he, he the fact that he cracks the plot, you know, mm. but <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I like the fact that they are this misfit group, but they're not too pretty. But I do agree again. If the center of this, the heart of this, should be someone who's super charismatic, super sort of like you should believe should be a present, should be should walk into a room, and absolutely be a present. That's the point of like I say going back to Doc Savage. Mm-hmm. You know when you read those Doc Savage books, like he's called the Man of Bronze because he's you know because he's sort of he's so tanned because he sort of worked out in the sun for so long, but he's sort of like you know he's perfectly he's not massive, he's just perfectly chiseled and he's. Super intelligent, but he's charming and sort of, you know, but he can be abrupt and super confident. Super right. confident. Yeah. That's the point. Like, you know, he's a Mary, a male Mary Sue. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's the, Ke- you know, he's the, yes. Yeah, so I don't know. The, what would that be? The Kevin Sue. Um, <laughs> but he is, you know, um, he's the Dwayne Johnson of, of, that, of that, of the 30s. But I, would, I, I yeah, just vomited. I, I wouldn't cast, I, but again, I wouldn't cast like The Rock or the Dwayne Johnson as Buckaroo Bonza. You need someone smaller. Looks sort of normal, but just needs like tons of charisma. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And whereas, like when when he's giving that, like it's kind of charming how he leaves the president, right? And he is mm. giving a press conference in which he's announcing, you know, extraterrestrial life, life in the eighth dimension, and mm. the, the world has changed, and he just leaves. You know, yeah. but it comes off more as like. Um, Elon Musk or more, yes. you know, like it comes off more as like a distracted inventor, which just doesn't give a shit about, you know, fame and popularity. Then, you know, like you, it comes off as like, oh, who's that idiosyncratic smart guy as opposed mm. to I have so much confidence that I, you know, cut off the president. and He's lucky to get this five minutes with me. Yeah, it's supposed he's supposed to be confident yet humble. You know, he's supposed to sort of like, you know, that's what you need to be getting. That's where the charisma comes in. So he's not like Tony Stark. It's not that extreme. You know, he's he's a combination of Tony Stark and, and Steve Rogers. That's well, what sort of, or, you know, I was thinking of Rick on Rick and Morty. You know, <laughs> he's the genius inventor that the president has to call. Right. Yeah. Except he's not that much of a dick. No, it's it's just interesting that, like you say, that yeah, the the, the idea for Buckaroo Bonsai, and it's really interesting as well. To, we'll we'll, a note we'll get onto about the you you say about the sort of you know the, who, the guy who wrote this. Um, yeah, the, the idea of Buckaroo Bonsai was supposed to be that was supposed to be this super cool, and thing, and I think that's one of the reasons this film flopped is because Peter Weller at the heart of it doesn't work. Peter Weller's a very intense actor. You know, he does some really good stuff. Like, you know, Robocop, I love, you know, you and I love Robocop. I think it's phenomenal. Um, in fact, every time I look at Peter Weller, I'm like, why does he not have that hole in his face? Yeah. You know, it doesn't look right without that hole in his face. Um, and so, yeah, no, and so I don't feel that he, he he's not the right fit for the role. And I do think that is a bit a bit of a problem with this film. It really is. Um. But I do, I do find that he's made. I, if you had a stronger central role, I'm perfectly happy with the casting of everybody else. I think it all works fine. Um, but you know, and I love the fact it taps into so many other things. Like you've got the um, the bonsai re- uh, regulars, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, which is clearly yeah, like sort the, of that Tom Strong fan club kind of thing. Yeah, well, that, and also the, the the Baker Street irregulars, which is mm-hmm. is uh, you know, so it's tapping into like Sherlock Holmes as well and all this other stuff. So, 
it's just full of these things where I'm like, ooh, ooh I get that. And so, you know, it, it appeals on so many levels. Um, I, I love the concept. I, I love the adventure story of it as well. Um, For me, when I real, it helped me to realize what kind of movie this was. Yeah. When they introduce, you know, uh, I forget his name, but the, the black kid who's part of the Irregulars. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and they introduce him and five minutes later, his dad rescues Buckaroo Banzai <laughs> with that with a hanging, you know, ladder from a helicopter. And I thought, oh, okay. They know how dumb that is, right? Yes. I mean, this is the end of the chapter of the serial, right? And I thought, okay, I need to readjust my calibrations <laughs> for what this wants to be doing. So th- this is where I think we need to talk about the production of this film, because you're right. Mm. Th- this film should know how is it a parody is my question is this film a parody of a genre that's gone Mm. so it's not quite naked gun level you know or or hot shots level sort of parody you know it's not sort of that slapstick leslie nielsen level humor but is this meant to be a parody of you know in the vein of sort of i recently watched the fiendish plot of of fu manchu which is you know a peter sellers uh, parody more like a gentle parody is it supposed to be a parody of those pulp pulp action adventures from the sort of the 30s and 40s and 50s? Is that what it's supposed to be? In which case, it needs to lean into the dumbness and the sort of the silliness of it way more. Um, for those moments, you do need, and you almost need the editing to be that as well. A big edit of Buckaroo Bonsai about to be hit by a truck. And you get like that, you almost get the sort of like, you know, um, same bat time, same mm-hmm. bat channel. And then cut to a, a, a um, the ladder falling down to give you those moments, but they don't. They cut straight through them. So, the guy that wrote this, um, in fact, I'm going to double check. No, it is it's the guy who wrote it, Earl Mac Rouch, also wrote the novelization. He contributed quite heavily to another film that came, I think, a year or so later that does this whole thing a lot better, and that is Big Trouble in Little China. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so with someone like Kurt Russell playing the Jack Burton role of the overconfident American, you know, white savior going into into sort of like little China, but being a complete buffoon and then then playing up the whole thing, you can see where they were going and where John Carpenter went, oh, I know exactly what you're doing. This is ludicrous. We're going to fully lean into the sort of the ridiculousness of it and we're going to have that Fu Manchu type asian character that's going to be you know proper villainous and really cool but you know we know what our ancestry is we know what the legacy of this is that film sort of got it right with the tone um where i think this film the the director wd richter i think sort of took it too serious he was looking at indiana jones Mm. rather than um you know, Star Wars with the you know the serial influence on both of those. Movies. Yes, and I think that was actually sort of an influence. They were looking to franchise this rather than go. Isn't this funny? Isn't this fun? And I think <laughs> that's the problem is that it takes itself a little too serious, which is what leads to the casting of Peter Weller. Yeah. And, and maybe Kurt Russell would have been a good shout for that character. You know, young Kurt Russell. But... I can see that personally. I I can't stand Kurt Russell. <laughs> I mean, everything he's ever been in. I it's just like even if I like the movie, I just he grates on me. He's the opposite of like the people who you just like to watch. 
Uh, you know, like I kind of like to watch him, and yet I kind of hate to watch him at the same time. I will, I will admit, Kurt Russell is one of my is one of my favorites. He's up there. <laughs> He's up there. Um, yes. No. Um, but like, but he, I could I could see Kurt Russell pulling it off. I mean, he yeah. has that sort of like charisma. You know, my, my only complaint is he always he always comes off as stupid no matter yes. who he's playing. Uh, whereas like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, uh, you know, might, I mean, I don't think he's dumb in real life, but I mean, he might come off as dumb, but he doesn't come off as annoyingly dumb, you know, yes. like Kurt Russell comes mean? off to me as annoyingly dumb. I think um, that was a, yeah, the type of thing he played, but again, well, I'm not going to defend but, okay. Kurt Russell in this, but, but, but you, he, that might not work for this because he's no. got to be, but I see what you're saying with charisma. I mean, it, it could work yeah. better. But can you see the sort of the tone that We're they were probably going for? Yeah. I see a thing. fight in our future. I, I can see us. Yeah, we're going to be doing talking the thing. And, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah. Um, no, that thing of like Big Trouble in Little China. So, you know, like, so the Earl uh, Mac Rouch contributed heavily to that. And I think that is a better representation of what this film should have been or was aiming for. Um and I think, because to be fair, Big Trouble in Little China flopped as well. So it's not like that was a big hit. That, but, but that's become a much more successful cult hit where this hasn't. Um, and I think its tone is what lets this down as well. I did find myself thinking about Escape from New York as far as tone goes, you know, which is another yes. Russell vehicle. Um, well, that's maybe a little more serious, but it, it still is like, golly gee, you know, just have fun with this wacky adventure, you know, and you get that tone right away. So I, I do see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, I, I think that's the problem with this. That they are they're trying to lean into. Yeah, they want sort of Snake Pliskin, even though Snake Pliskin's a ridiculous character anyway, and that's a, he's a, a take of so much more. But yeah, that, that's the problem. I think you know they're not entirely sure because you get scenes like um, the the scene with the introduction of, of Penny uh, Penny Pretty, which Let's comes talk across about that scene. <laughs> yeah, because it comes across it comes across really cringy. Yes, and it's not good. But again, I think you know, again, it could work with the right level. Firstly, the first thing is they're supposed to be these massively successful rock stars. Like everybody seems to know who Buckaroo Banzai is. There's like twenty people at this thing. <laughs> Clearly, they didn't have enough money for extras. Oh my god. Okay, so. So you you were saying that uh, you know uh, Mr. Perfect, what's his Tommy, name? Uh, uh, Perfect Tommy. Perfect Tommy is mm. kind of an asshole. Um, yeah. But in in fact, uh, in that scene where he's being asked to to give his coat, his jacket, uh, Buckaroo Banzai has a jacket on. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what you know. I mean, it's like so that question isn't the answer isn't because it's a woman who needs it, you know. The 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 real question is, hey, I'm above it all. I'm the <laughs> asshole. I'm demanding you to give your jacket over. Why? Because I asked, you know, and that's really, you know, so. So I don't think that, you know, uh, uh, Perfect Tommy is a dick in that scene. I think Buckaroo Banzai is, if any. <laughs> um, and in that scene in the bar, I mean, <laughs> you know, so. For viewers, you know, we're talking about they're playing guitar. And, you know, he's playing guitar. And, and saxophone. You know, there's there's, lots of, yeah, there's, it's very 80s. There's lots of saxophone going on as well. Yes. And and he apparently hears a woman sobbing in the crowd. There's a woman sitting alone. She's, you know, she's 
been kicked out of the Y, you know, she, you know, somebody who's had to live at the Y, I, I identify. Um, and she is depressed. She has no money, you know, and um, so this poor woman is sitting alone and he isolates, says, put a spotlight on her, yeah. stick a camera. And well, everybody's staring at her. And, uh, you know, and obviously like the social anxiety a woman at the end of her, you know, string would feel. I just think, what a fucking dick you are. And then he yeah. doesn't say like, oh, my God, I put you on the spot. I'll, I'll take care of you. He's just like, you know what? I'll play you a song on the piano. I mean, which is also just complete dickish nonsense. And that song is about like at the end of my room, you know, like just horrible, depressed song. Like this is not going to make her feel less alone. This is going to make her feel like, you know, I should kill myself, which is then what she tries to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's misinterpreted <coughs> as an attack. But I just thought through that whole thing, uh, Buckaroo Banzai is just such a fantastic dick. That it's hard for me to ever forgive him. I, I agree with that. It's a really interesting, it's a difficult scene to watch because it doesn't work. I agree. Because the other thing as well is the only reason she doesn't commit suicide is a waitress bumps into her. So mm. it's not like she decides not to. Like that that scene could have ended very differently. Um, so Bookaroo doesn't even talk her down, which is yeah. what it should be. That that scene should be him, like I say, not putting the, the spotlight on it or anything like that. It should be can someone you know, let's get her out of the audience, let's get her away from, you know, let's console her. And he talks her down. But he doesn't, like you say, he puts the spotlight on her and then tells, and you're right again, in fact, now I reconsider it, like he tells perfect Tommy to get a microphone and Tommy, even Tommy's like, what? <laughs> Why? And he's like, just do it. Well, um, the other thing is he keeps calling her Peggy instead of Penny, yeah. like over and over, and she keeps correcting him and he yeah. keeps ignoring it. That seems pretty clear. No, I'm supposed to think Buckaroo Banzai is a phenomenal douche. Yeah, you're not supposed to, but he does, <laughs> it doesn't work. Because the thing about that scene is as well, like she is, she is to him, out of the crowd, she is the visage of his dead wife. And it's supposed to have knocked him for six, and his wife's name was Peggy. So when she says, my name's Penny, he misses him. He's obviously mishearing it. Did you, did you say Peggy? Like, he's really clutching. Like, it's supposed to be a moment of grief for him. Um, and it doesn't come across like that. Like, I completely agree. Because to him, cause I, and I love the fact that there's, there's, it is weird that all the other sort of the, all the other cavaliers keep saying, like, are we going to talk about this? Like, she looks like Peggy. Like, are, are we going to discuss this? Um, and like none of them are like you know going. No one wants to confront Buckaroo about it. They're all saying like you know we've got to talk to him. This is not right. And if anything, there's a part of me that that feels really uncomfortable with the ending of this film because he ends up with Penny. But I'm like, yeah, but you haven't formed a relationship with her. You haven't spent any time with her. Like, you're with her because she looks like your dead wife. And that that's is incidentally my first pickup line at the bar. You know, <laughs> you look like my dad. You know, baby, you look like the spitting image of my dead wife. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um. So yeah. So we agree that whole bar scene. And it all, the thing is, it also holds that that scene also contains one of the most quoted lines of mm. of Booker Bonzo, which is "No matter where you are, or no matter where you go, there you are." Which is actually a really the, the point of that is, 
you can't run away from your problems because as soon as you get somewhere else there, there it's you. You, you you're still carrying that stuff which is a great piece of advice but, but again the dialogue doesn't quite work because he's addressing the crowd not her mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, tell, he's telling them off for, for sort of laughing at her situation or for sort of being mean he says, don't be mean he's come on come on let's not be mean let's be mean you're the one you're right you're the one that's just put the spotlight on that like you're yes. the one that's slightly mean and he says you know don't forget no, no matter where you go there you are which, to which me, is kind of like screw you lady you're you know like you're suffering yeah you're gonna keep suffering good luck with that now i'm gonna play a song yeah if anything I, I do i do really think this is probably the worst scene in the film um because of that very that very that whole thing makes feel uncomfortable like, i want this to be played out I, th- again this is where you should get to see the compassionate side of buckaroo why did peggy fall in love with him let's see that compassionate side let's see that side that she fell in love with have him talk her down in a side room and and have this conversation you know you could even still have the line when she's like if i can't kill myself i'm just going to keep running and he can be like well you know no matter where you go there you are and he can talk her down from that it, but yeah i agree i, I have no why they end up together okay because you know it is weird you're completely right to point that out it is also super weird to me that they they I mean, she spends like the last thirty minutes being tortured in this movie, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then the last time we see her is with this alien slug going down a boy, and it's one of these ridiculous setups where it is very movie serial, but you know mm-hmm. where you think, you know, you have guns, right? You know, maybe you want to torture her, but you know, like this is an awful long. So you think this is set up to have somebody rescue her at the last moment? Nobody comes in and rescues her. <laughs> you never see it. This never comes back. No drama has ever gotten out of this. She's you just hear off screen that she's been rescued and she's and, and well, and then, you know, she seems to be dead. Yada, yada, yada. You know, she's alive at the end. Uh, so they don't even show her death. They don't show her being rescued. You know, this like you set up a clock and then, you know, nothing happens. So my theory is she ends up with him because she likes being tortured. Yeah. There's no relationship there. She's just a massive masochist. And so, get you know, and I guess she's at the end of the rope and uh, her rope. And we're supposed to think like, you know, OK, you know, this is a great basis for a relationship. <laughs> you look like my whatever your i don't care about your personality right because it does bother me that like in even in that crowd shot at the end okay you have one woman and she spent half the movie being tortured and yeah there because of who she looks like you know he never asked a question about her personality you know her suffering and she's obviously you know i mean but she held on she let herself be tortured rather than break so i guess that's what he wants yeah, she's now joined the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Yeah, no, I agree. The ending, <laughs> the ending, that that ending does bother me because it is like you know, oh yeah, you're you're awake. Firstly, she's literally just been revived from death. Um, so there's got to be just there's got to be a conversation there. <laughs> um, and there's no one checking her or anything. Like it's 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 very movie serial. I agree, but it should lean into those tropes more for that to work for those moments to work it needs to accept those tropes a little bit more and stop trying to be because it's a bit too serious in some of those moments it tries for the melodrama rather than going for sort of like oh no it's short it should be more melodramatic in the sort of you know in those sort of it tries to be too serious um 
it needs like the John Williams, like, you know, s- Star Wars ending, you know, it's like, you know, like that romantic yeah. theme as he leans in and kisses her, you know. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, it needs to sort of fall into some of those tropes. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the bit, I mean, this is the, that's the thing with this film, like I say, it, it's missing bits. And it's sort of, I think tonally, it's a bit all over the place. If I'm perfect, it's hard to explain why I like this film so much. It's one of those <laughs> things where like, I agree because it is. I just sort of got into it and I was like, this is, I, I enjoy this film. There's a wackiness to this film. But I, I totally agree. Like, this is one of those few films that if some, if I was to wake up tomorrow, because originally, um, Kevin Smith was going to remake this as a TV series for Amazon. Fine. I'm not entirely, you know, Kevin Smith is fine for many things. But if, if, for example, if James Gunn, they wake up tomorrow and they're like, following the Suicide Squad, James Gunn's going to make redo Bookaroo Bonsai. I'd be like, good, remake it. Let's let's get James Gunn's a good a good choice. You know he can do this. He can do this weirdness well. He does good groups of sort of you know cast, uh, of um, misfits. He can probably he can pull off the dark. There's weird humor moments, but but give it heart. Like I think you know he's probably a good choice to do it. Let's get a good charismatic cast in there playing playing these things. This film would be a massive hit if they plug some of these holes and got the tone right. Yeah. Um, but there's bits that, like I say, that just don't work. Um, however, I still like like this idea. And again, like, you know, we've talked about like, the watermelon. We didn't talk about. It, we mentioned it. And as you walk through, so there's a scene. For those who haven't watched it, um, you probably should have done. Uh, but there's a film <laughs> that they're sort of. So the electroids have, in, have have gotten into the book, the Bonsai Institute, and they're going around. And Reno is a is a company by New Jersey, and they go through a, a, a room, and there's a watermelon that looks like it's under a compressor. <laughs> Um, and sort of New Jersey sort of goes, what's that doing there? So I'll tell you later. And then they leave the room, and it never comes up again. Like it's completely mm-hmm. sort of pointless. And it's sort of that in that single moment, that is the sort of it, you can sort of tell that there's, that's almost like a statement of intent. It comes very well into the film, but that's sort of the point. It's like, oh yeah, there's going to be things in this film that are completely unrelated to this adventure that you're not going to, you know, we just don't, we're not going to give you any information about. But you know, if if you were to read this as a serial, you know that might be an Easter egg to a previous adventure. That that's not a watermelon. That's actually a, a dragon egg or some other wacky thing that sort of you know the the, the Bonsai Institute sort of dealt with. Uh, it's a bomb that has to be applied under pressure from the you know the crime syndicate or something like that. There'll be a reason for it. It's a that 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 is an Easter egg for a story that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I can. That's the only yeah. way I can describe it. That's really cool. Um, which I think is a great idea. It, it, you know, and it's, it precedes Easter eggs in films, like you know, Marvel Easter eggs and DC Easter eggs by decades. Um, and so I, I appreciate that because it's obviously, like you say, it's supposed to be a part of a serial. But again, if you're going to do that, then you need to really lead into the silliness of these serials, and it doesn't quite do that. Um, so yeah. That that sort of the the, the point of the what, you know, that was just any thoughts on that from a, a watermelon perspective? Yeah, I mean, I I love what you're saying about it. I think that's the best way to take it. I mean, I thought that, um, you know, I mean, for me, I did take it as a sign, but I took it as a sign that, like, it's pretty clear they're not going to explain this, right? Yeah. 
Um, and so I just took it as a sign of like, yeah, you're just supposed to go along with this movie if if you haven't gotten, you know, and, and like you say, it doesn't kind of fully commit to that tone. But I, I think with the with the helicopter rescue, that's pretty clear to me. Mm-hmm. OK, don't take this movie very seriously. Have fun with a watermelon thing. It's like, yeah, there are issues. We're just not go- don't expect this plot to be explained. There's stuff that we're just going <laughs> to let hang. It's not important. Um, weirdly one of the things that pops into my head whilst watching this was a film I saw relatively recently that I thought was a massive um, I I thought was a massive misstep and that was um, Zack Snyder's um, was it what's it Army of the Dead whatever it was the thing where they go to Las Vegas and so you go oh it's a heist movie in Vegas during a zombie apocalypse oh this is going to be carnage it's going to be full of silliness you know sort of like someone riding a cadillac down the strip with a machine gun it has a guy with a buzzsaw that he can hold he's going to be about you know stood on a pile of a top of, of a bunch of dead bodies and all sorts of stuff like there is a tone i'm expecting akin to maybe not evil dead 2 but like you know a silliness quotation zombie get, land or zombie land or that kind of thing yeah and when you don't get that you go huh this sort of didn't quite get permission. This didn't, you know, this, um, he didn't get the sort of like what the intent of this was. It's, it's, his, it's his own film, which is fine, but I don't think he understood the mission. And I sort of feel that a little bit, you know, it, it, with Buckaroo Bonsai is, huh, they didn't quite understand the mission. You know, there was a sort of, there's a mis, there's a miscommunication in this. And it may even be with studios going like, we want a franchise film that's similar to, you know, like we, ooh, we've we had Indiana Jones and we've had Star Wars and we've had those other films. We want something to jump on the back of. And then they watched it and like, yeah, that's not it. <laughs> like this, this isn't, this isn't that. This is a weird action film that's sort of like, and they should have lent into that more, I think. So I don't know, that, that's sort of my thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I found myself thinking at multiple points you know it's only a few years away you know of goldblum and earth girls are easy um yes you know which you know while not a great movie knows it's a campy comedy from start to finish um and and tells you that right away from the start and this has elements of that but then elements that as you say the tone is just incongruent with that yeah um and you know, there, there's no sense of dangling plots and, and you know, I mean, there's dumb stuff. But, the, you know, uh, actually, that that has a much better and explained romance yes. <laughs> than this does. Yes. But, uh, yeah, but, you know, I find that that incongruence. I agree with you. I mean, there there is a sort of like campy sort of like escape from New York uh, sort of movie in this that I don't know if it would have been a hit, but at least would have been, you know, I mean, I think what I want in these movies is for them to be unapologetically themselves. Yes. And to commit fully. And even if I don't like it, the degree to which they follow through on their own ideas, they, you know, are still consistent, even if, you know, even if it doesn't work, they pound that into the ground and are consistent through until it kind of works. And you kind of yeah. admire them doing that. And and this doesn't seem to, to have that. No, 
it's true yeah it's you know you mentioned earth girls are easy like there are other films that just go for it in that tone the 80s were rife with these kinds of films where they like you say usually in the horror genre like horror seemed to get this idea of like oh no no like this is nonsense (laughs) but we are going to commit to this so much in this horror critters is a good example Mm. like critters isn't fundamentally isn't a good film but it's really fun like you know, and it knows it's silly. So you're like, okay, fine. Toxic Avenger, those those trauma films, or like Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Like they know what they are, and they, like you said, they're gonna hammer it home to the extent where you go like, if you you're either gonna love it or you're gonna go, not for me, move on. The, 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 Buckaroo Bonsai sort of like even with the title, you know, Buckaroo Bonsai, uh, the adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai through the eighth dimension, is looking to mimic Indiana Jones and. The Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, whatever. It's looking to mimic that, but then, you know, it doesn't quite know if it's a serious action-adventure film or it's a comedy. <laughs> Is it a silly sci-fi comedy? Um, and I, and I, say, I, I, I say, if this film had committed, just absolutely committed to some of those moments more, I, th- I think it would be... It, you're right, it wouldn't have been a success, but I think it would be a much bigger cult success today. No, I agree. You know, and, and I, I do think there is that sort of, I mean, that is the way it's got to go, right? I mean, it, you know, there is a sort of like campy, cra- you know, crazier version of this mm. that, you know, keeps, you know, 80, 90% of the dialogue intact, you know, keeps most of, you know, the plot intact. Um, if anything, maybe adds a few things here and there. But, um, but you know, lets you know right from the start, you know, uh, it, it, you know, it's it's like it, I don't know, maybe maybe it needs an opener that does that for tone. Like, you know, I'm thinking mm. of like the, I mean, the uh, Red Dwarf episode that opens with, uh, you know, uh, surfing. Um, what is it? Uh, it's not surfing the shark. What is it? Uh, with the, the Nazi... Um, oh, the Ace Rumor one, yes. Yeah, the Ace Rumor callback. Yes. Uh, yeah, he, saves, where, you know, he surfs a crocodile, yeah. Surfs a crocodile, thank you. Yeah. You know, which is so over the top where instantly lets you know this is what I'm dealing <laughs> And you could start with another, you know, a little, little vignette of uh, a, a different adventure of Buckaroo Banzai that kind of, like, establishes... I mean, of course, today would be, like, you know... Um, uh, Perfect Tommy, you know, and you get the, yeah. like screen lettering and you know the brief that, flashback. That, that would be ace. That would be what you do. You you get that mini adventure to establish the cat to establish the group. I think they'll cut the group the group down and to that core group because I mean that's even even like the shadow had a network, but like Doc Savage only had four guys, four or five guys. But Ace Rimmer, Chris Barry is Ace Rimmer is a better example of that ridiculousness of the character that that, that Mary Sue. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. pulp Biggles kind of character than than Bukaru Bonsai. Like, you know, and the fact is, like, he is endlessly charming. You know, you know, you mm-hmm. could you you want to be able to watch this, and regardless of what he does, you want to be able to say about Bukaru Bonsai, what a guy. Mm-hmm. That's what you want. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. And and that should be it. Like, he should be the Ace Rimmer character. That as soon as he steps in the room, everyone should be like, everything's going to be okay now. He's here to save the day, um, and you don't feel like that, right? I no, mean, from no. 
early on, I think, what a dick instead of what a guy uh, several times. And by the end where he's like, yeah, we've got two hours, you know, like we're going to I'm going to go. In, well, we'll just get that device back and also rescue the girl. But, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the priority is the device. And I'm like, hold on a minute. I don't, I'm not going to follow your plan. I don't have no confidence in you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't understand that, but you're right. I mean, you know, if it were Ace Rimmer, you know, if it were played with that sort of delight, um, and I, and I guess for me, that's, that's part of what I, you know, not knowing what I was going to say about this movie, what I came down to is it's just not, it should have that kind of delight. Mm. And it has a little bit of an intellectual delight as I, you know, see what they're doing and, and how they go for it. And, and there is a kind of delight of just sort of like, how the F did this get made? You know, yeah. that, that I have a lot of the times I enjoy weird stuff, but, but I wanted to have that, you know, ideally that joy of that Ace Rimmer stuff. Um, and it doesn't tickle me in quite the same way. No, I agree, and so it, you know, I I brought this in. I've I've sort of bigged it up because I knew I knew this was going to be a like a Marmite film. You'd either be all in it or like you, yeah, you'd be like, what what have you made me watch? Uh, and I will admit, <laughs> like, I I have defended, I will defend it. It's, this isn't like one of my top ten films. Like you know, it's it's definitely you know, it's not so I sort of like I will not die on the hill of defending uh, Buckaroo Bonsai. I I will acknowledge its flaws, but again, like you say, there are bits and there there's just a sort of there's a there is a tone to this film that's missing, but there was a stuff in this film I really enjoy. And again, I think it is part of the fact it is so weird. The other thing as well is it's pretty brutal. Like, you know, again, you mentioned sort of like Bonsai being a bit of a dick, but like Rawhide doesn't make it, yeah. you know, and it's, there's no there's no heroic, there's not these heroic moments of saving him, sort of like, no, it's like, no, the, the, the Lectroid's got him and he takes it. Reno takes a shot in the arm early on, and at one point you're wondering if he's down. You know, um, they do try and establish stakes in a way to say, like, no, this cast, this crew could be taken out. Like, you know, the, the Electroids are a legit threat. Um, and so the, I, I commend them for that. That, like, you know, the, this isn't the, this isn't the sort of a completely safe crew. Um. But again, you know, the, the room, it doesn't seem to carry on, <laughs> you know, yeah. that tone. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's the thing as well. I'd also say, like you say, the, the, one of the biggest things. So I, I think more more than people, like, I just love John Lithgow in this film. I think, you know, sort oh, of like, so he's just, he's just a wonder to watch. And I, always, I always like John Lithgow, um, you know, when he, he calls him, the guy comes in to uh, bring him his drugs or whatever, you know. Uh, I forgot his words. I was like, you know, watch your back, a monkey, a boy. Um, it's just so over the top, so ridiculous. Um, it, well, he knows what kind of movie this is, right? Yes. I mean, he oh, knows totally. that tone that it should have. Yeah. I think that there's a, there's a few in the cast that do. And I think all the people playing the Electroids know, like Christopher Lloyd, Tom Noonan, those guys, all those know what this is. When they're getting their makeup on, they're like, oh, we know what this is. We totally know. <laughs> We totally understand what this film is. Like, I'm an alien. Saigons, but sillier, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, one of them's wearing glasses. Yeah. Which tells me they've gone to the opticians. 
Yeah. So there's things like that that you go, well, yeah. that, that, that makes no sense. Um, so they know what they're doing. It's, it's, it's the bonsai side of things, I think, that is less coherent in that set. But even within that lot, I honestly think like the guy who plays Perfect Tommy sort of knows what film it is because he's sort of playing up that little bit. Um, and at least, they, like, if all out of all of their looks, I like his look the best. And it's yeah. because of the dyed hair. It, yeah. It's got that, you know, there is a distinct look to him that I really dig. Uh, you know, yeah. And you want, if you were to do it and you were have them all to be, like, say, a bunch of, you know, good looking, modern, you know, uh, hero types, to have one called Perfect Tommy. The irony of having that a bunch of monks of sort of a group of really, you know, really good looking people. <laughs> Um, would be great. Um, I'd also probably, you know, again, we, we often touch on this, it's been 80s and stuff, like, if this is supposed to be the Bonsai Institute, yes, you've got the, a, a Japanese contingent, but, like, you know, I would love it to be a much more diverse group because, yeah. um, you you know, you, you get some really cool characters in. Um, but, yeah, no. I, well, there, there's that, there's the Japanese scientist, I think yeah. he's Japanese, and then there's the you know, the I think the only two black characters are the uh, kid, right? Who's part of the yeah. irregulars and his his, his and then and then John Parker. Okay, yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, it's not it's not completely you know it's not it's not a completely white cast because all the all the sort of um, the good guy electrodes are all are all African American. They're all black characters, right? Um, and so you know, like you say, it's good to have the, you know it's, it's nice nod to say that yeah, it's not the white guys that are the, are the goodies. Um, but again, even like John Parker gets sort of sidelined slightly. Like, you know, this guy's got, seems to have superhuman strength. Like he's jumping over like yeah. 10 foot walls and sort of stuff. Never used. <laughs> yeah. That, those jumps were not great over the walls, you know, the cutting there, but, but not bad enough that, you know, like, I, you know, I mean, well, a more recent example of this is sort of like Kung Fu hustle, which yes. I'm a big fan of. Um, you know, Again, instantly, you know, right from the start, what kind of movie it is. But, you know, like the jump over the walls isn't quite bad enough. Like I want it to be worse. Like I want it like, you know, the sort of like um, bionic man kind of like sound. And that's the thing, because I think you know, but I think that's budgetary. It, you know, it wants to show some things as cool. You know, this wants to be like, you know, Marvel level for some bits, but then silly for others. Um, and again, to be fair, like you know, this is where I will touch on modern. Mo, mo, there are some modern films that have done this, where you've applied really good special effects to moments, but you're able to insert the humor or the the sort of the silly. Gun is a great example to redo yeah. this. It's right up this alley. Yeah, and so I think you know you can do that. Um, and so even even not in TV, like I've, there's been weird TV shows. I think the Netflix did a um, oh what was it? What was the Douglas Adams detective books? Um, it's going to really bother me now. Uh, gently, um, dirt gently. Dirt gently. So they did two, that's, yes, the, so they did two series of the holistic of the holistic detective history, and it's really good. It's proper weird, like, you know, it really leans into the bizarre. But everything's played, anything that's sort of to be a special effect is played to be realistic. They've gone mm -hmm. with the budget. And it sort of adds to the weird because you're like, oh, it doesn't look cheap and campy. 
<laughs> it looks legit, but you've still got this weird ca- these weird characters doing this stuff, and it's sort of like, so it works, and that's what I think should be with this, like you know, Buckaroo and his crew should be just normal people, and the things going on around them should look great, and it should look like really good action, like you know, but still in a sort of a legit campy way, but not in a bad low budget B movie kind of way, you know. Um. All I'm talking myself into is this should be remade. This this neat and in fact anything now is the time to make a Bukhari Bonsai remake. Yeah, um, no, I could see that. I mean, and you have definitely convinced me that there is a good or at least fun movie hiding in this. You know, and a lot of book, times the book nails it. The book nails it, and I think that's because the guy who writes it wrote the novelization, and so the book is told from. Uh, it's told by Reno, and it's told so it leans into this idea of like the, the Doctor Watson, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's, yeah. it's a journaling of these things. And so at the beginning, he's like, "Well, there are scenes that you know we weren't present for, but I'm just assuming these are what they said, sort of thing." <laughs> and so he's got these. But then it goes off on li- weird little. It goes off on little tangents. Um, the whole thing with Peggy and Penny is is covered really well. Um, the whole thing with Electroids is covered. But like it has a humor that as you're reading it, you're like, oh yeah, no, they he knows exactly what he's writing. He's aiming for that, you know, he knows this is a pulp adventure book, but he also knows that you're supposed to be la- you're supposed to be smiling at it as you go. <laughs> you know, this isn't supposed to be a chore to work through. This isn't um supposed to be a sort of like a serious, you know, tryst on on superheroes or public like no he's just like no this is a cool adventure but you're supposed to be thinking like oh this is silly you know like you know this is daft and so the book is a much more a much better capture of what that tone is um and it, it, funnily enough that there's a new book he's written a new bookaroo bonsai book it comes out this year and i'm actually quite excited for it but it, you know that's this idea because even the film ends with you know bookaroo will turn with bookaroo versus the crime syndicate um, and again, in this film, they set up. You don't know it. In fact, you won't. You won't have a clue because you haven't read the book or the comic. This book try is, is sort of alluding to what that next film will be. So you know, at the beginning of the film, you know when, when Lazardo escapes from uh, the hospital, he receives mm-hmm. a package. Uh, and the package is, you know, because the the him receiving that package is what instigates him, you know, furthering his escape from Mm. it's. So in the book, it explains that that has come from this Zhang Chi or the the head of the crime syndicate, like Bukaru's nemesis. Mm -hmm. And he sent him some stuff that sort of going like, you know, well, you know, this oscillation overthrust is exactly what you need. And here's the instructions of how you can get it. Mm -hmm. And I've I've actually set up. So if you if you if you leave the prison, the, the basically if you leave now, there's a car waiting for you outside. So this guy who leads the crime syndicate instigates and supports Lazada's escape from from the hospital. You don't know any of that because the scene that explains that is cut from the film and it's never mentioned again. And obviously they then mentioned about uh, later there was also a deleted scene where. where Bonsai completely explains how Peggy was killed, and that she was killed by this 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 Zhang Chi. Ah, okay. So it's all good, and so when you hear that, like he was the leader of the crime syndicate, he's done this stuff with Zardo. So when at the end, when it says, 
the next adventure is Buckaroo Banzai versus the crime syndicate. You're like, oh, yeah, he, he's going to go after the person that killed his wife and the person mm. that let Lazardo out. It's supposed to have a bit of an impact, but it doesn't because it's never mentioned <laughs> in the film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there is that sort of, you know, um, stuff that's missing mm. in, in the editing um, that you've suggested before. And I love that you have, have read the novel and the comics and you, you know, you know about this movie. Um, it definitely helps me to appreciate, again, not necessarily what's on screen, but more, you know, a, a lot of my favorite movies are movies where I accept the flaws yeah. because I can see a better version of it that like it's good enough that I want to rewrite it. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's potential there um, to be something really unique and special, um, but it's kind of just a, a blueprint or a first draft of it. Um here's another thing that I don't understand. Okay. So, you know, you have the watermelon, you have, you know, certain things that, you know, this package, I mean, certain things that aren't explained. Okay. So they make such a big deal out of, I mean, so Buckaroo gets this electroshock in the phone booth, right? Yes. And okay. So that is the villains trying to like take him out. No. So that is a, um, yeah, <laughs> Because he, he received, it's meant to be a call from the president and he can't get through. Mm. That is the good electroids um, giving him the ability to see through the disguise of the red electroids. Okay. So there's a further scene later on when they explain how they do it. So they, they produce a pheromone, which you obviously yes. in, you know, inhale, and it tells your brain what you should see. So you see them and it looks like Christopher Lloyd or it looks like... Um, John Parker looks like the the black the, the raster the, the black guy with the dreads. Um, that shock that zapping sort of prevents Booker's uh, bonsai from uh, yeah Booker's brain from being manipulated. Mm-hmm. So then he's being susceptible then, to this kind of like exactly so then, thing that's in the air. Yeah. So then he when he goes back into the the conference room, he sees the three red electrodes sat in the chairs, and that's when he's mm. like, you know, he points them out and makes the big statement, which again, like you know, should be like a big. It is a big moment, and again, if it was a different actor, I think you could play it up really cool. Um, because again, th- this is re- revisited a little bit later on. They're given when they go out for the final bit, they've got their suits on, with the snorkels on, and and Bonsai says he says, you know, Bob, but breathing through this will stop you from from inhaling the. Uh, the pheromones, so you will see them for exactly what they are. And mm-hmm. Jeff, and New Jersey, sort of takes an inhale and looks back to see what John Parker yeah. actually looks like, and he's like, "What the, like, you know?" So they try to establish it, but th- yeah, that's what it is that electric shock allows him to see the electroids as they actually are. Right, and so and, and I did pick that up later in the movie, and he also has as a side effect of this. Anything, anyone he touches gets electrified. It's like a static shock. Yeah, right? basically, yeah. Um, Which becomes I'm a not sure joke, how that. Is, I'm not sure how that goes away at the finale. <laughs> I mean, but okay. All right, so I, I'm trying to understand this. Okay, but so I guess that phone call was from the good guys trying to give him the superpower or make mm-hmm. him, you know, so that he to help out the great Buckaroo Banzai. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. He also has a vision of a formula during that uh, that he's struck by this knowledge. 
and he yeah. writes it on his hand real <laughs> fast, which I, I don't know what he's using to do so. And then it's permanently like just on his hand. It's it's said to be the antidote. Mm. Then later the on, he, oh, it's the, so that's the antidote for the pheromones, yes. and that's, that's how they breathing. made that technology. That's later. what they're breathing because he licks it and stamps it onto the the, right, the which, scientist's head. How does he no know sense. that's going to work? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so that's that's so that's what they're breathing in through the snorkels. Okay. Uh, See, yeah. I was like, what the hell is, you know, it's the antidote. And then you have, like, a few minutes later, you have that death scene, you know, which I, I kind of like, you know, with mm. Rohai, um, where, you know, uh, the cowboy references get to be a little much, you yeah. know, where it's like, per and, and it doesn't quite go far enough where it's like, permission to die, you know. Um, it could go for, but the cowboy yeah, but stuff, as an American, about, like. Yeah, it's either, it's either back off. Or lean into it. Yeah, you know, if it really leaned into it and was like, "It's my time to ride off into the sunset" or something <laughs> like that, like, yeah, go for it. That's what you should be doing. Rawhide's supposed to be the cowboy character. Play it like a cowboy. You should be played by a Texan, really. But yeah. Okay, so you've helped me understand that. That so what I was saying about the rawhide scene is that's just a little after, and mm. you you find out that the you know. The, the aliens can spit this sort of like um, octopus-like, yeah. uh, spider-like, uh, starfish-like thing that bites you and poisons you. And there's no and they spe they specifically say there's no antidote, right? Mm. So I'm thinking like, so what is that? You just said you have the antidote written on your hand. Oh no, that's the antidote to this other thing that you haven't explained yet. Yeah. This is a different thing that there's no antidote for. Yes, so there's a structural problem for the information as well. The expedition, sorry, the expedition, the ex explanations of things in this uh, don't come in the right order. <laughs> you have to, and again, I wonder if that's intentional because it wants you to think, it wants you to try and put the pieces together. Because even Bookaroo's confused at one point. Like, is it supposed to be intentional? If it is, fine, but at least give us something. So I agree with that because I've had to watch this film a number of times and read the novelization to fully get some of this stuff. And you know, in other in other podcasts, I've talked with um, uh, Mike Burton, who does uh, you know, his Star Wars. He's a massive fan of Star Wars. He does a big Star Wars podcast. And the number of times it, when, when I've talked about Star Wars with him, he's gone, "Well, actually, in this book or in this comic, that's explained." And I've gone, "I shouldn't have to read the comic or the book to understand." And I'm now advocating for the fact I'm reading both the comic and the book. No, but not no, just... you're not. You're, you're, <laughs> you're saying you're saying I have this ancillary knowledge, right? Yeah. I can't apply it to you know help you understand or not. But at the end of the day, the movie has to be judged on its own merits. Yeah, yeah. And you like it and it or you don't, mm. and it works or it doesn't. I mean, that's the difference. Yeah. Uh, the people who you and I are annoyed by are the people who are like, no, no, no. See, you have to understand. No, screw yeah. you. I don't have to understand anything, my friend. Yeah. You know, it was not done well enough for me to understand in the movie. Therefore, it has failed. Um <laughs> Yeah, and, so, and this film does this this film does fail on that front. Like, you have to watch this multiple. Now, to be fair, a lot of the information is there. Mm -hmm. It's just not in the right order, and it's usually not part of the usual. Uh, you know, it's drop lines or 
it's a it's it's a part of a separate conversation where you're like hang on that okay right that goes back to that you know this because your primer board uh, yeah 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 i've got a buckaroo board where i'm like right Uh that bit connects to that i know that right let's just build this in um yeah that's so that's that's a fair you know point i mean you know i i definitely do and and i i think there's a difference between stuff not being there Mm -hmm. uh like you know you know you've cut the the connection to you know uh the the crime syndicate Mm -hmm. um or you know the stuff with uh peggy penny um there's a difference between stuff that's not there and stuff that you have to see multiple times but the information is there yeah Um, they're two totally different complaints um and I don't think there's anything wrong with something that you have to see multiple times to appreciate further nuances. Mm. I do sometimes object when things aren't presented in a clearer way where they clearly it would have been easy to do so. Um, it's not like, you know, it's not like Dune where you've got to be thrown into this other world <laughs> and you'll figure it out eventually. But the thing you were saying about like how sometimes it's just like in quick lines gets back to what I was saying about how like the dialogue feels off. Mm. There are weird moments where like a super, super important line is said super quickly between two like (laughs) unconnected lines. And then they spent like five, six lines like quibbling about something very minor. And I'll think, why am I getting all this dialogue here when I had to sort of like rewind to to understand a key point i think yeah and again i think this comes down to um there are certain things they wanted to capture with this film or at least trying to convey um and one of them is that all these guys live together yeah so the hong kong cavaliers spend pretty much all their time together and so kind of like almost, a bathhouse situation right yeah yes yes they can get you up no well you, i don't know what goes on behind that bunkhouse all kinds of things uh, these are rock stars on the road. You know, I'm sure there's stories to tell. Um, but the thing is, these guys—they're supposed—they're trying to convey this idea that they have a shorthand. You know, these guys could converse in a shorthand. They know each other, but also they're going to talk about stuff that's irrelevant. You know, this idea of—and uh, funny enough, this is so, this is something that does get my goat in other films when you have characters that are supposed to have known each other for decades or years. Yet they only ever talk about the plot, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're like, no, like I've got friends I've known for years, and like you know, we might have a specific thing we're doing, but I'm still going to have a side conversation about something that's completely relevant. But I also know that that doesn't work in a film because, you know, it it, it diverts from the plot, it 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 slows the pace, it does all this other stuff. There's a reason this doesn't really happen, and you can have references to you know things that you know people aren't going to understand. You know, mm-hmm. if it's like oh. That's just like uh, Mary. Well, who the hell is that? You know, yeah, so, oh, exactly. it's another Mary. You know, okay, yeah, exactly. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there's a little bit of they're trying to almost do that a little bit, where they're trying to sort of show that how close these people are by having this sort of like, like you say, this sort of banter about other things or sort of you know conversation with other things. So it's like, unfortunately, it comes at the it does come at the cost of the, <laughs> the primary plot, and so you do have to watch it multiple. So again. It's this thing of like, I get what they're trying to do, or at least I think I, I get what they're trying to convey. It's just not. It's one of those things that you you know I can imagine again if I was on set, and you were a director or one of the writers or a producer or whatever, and you're watching this scene, 
where they do this, or even like a table reading or, or a rehearsal, you probably go, I see what you're doing. And, you know, my note is, I get what you're doing. And I understand you want to show this in the characters. It's too much. Uh, pull back on that. To, you've got to raise the profile of the, um, you know, the explanatory dialogue. Mm. Um, and I, I just think that sort of is is part. Of the, so I think, I think, yeah, that's. I think I think that's what it is. I could be yeah. completely wrong, but that's how it feels to me. Well, I mean, rule number one, it would seem to me, you know, I mean, if I'm in that room, rule number one is the audience is especially because you're expecting people to see this in theaters. And mm-hmm. at this point, you know, there's a videotape market, but it's still in its nascent. Mm. Um, you know, so, um, you know, might get played on TV a few times. But I mean, basically, people are going to have to understand this the first time through. So, I mean, if I'm in that room, I'd say, look, all of that's great, but you've got to foreground the plot. You've got to remember somebody who's going in blind might not even be the smartest person. You know, they're distracted by the popcorn next to them and they mm-hmm. miss a line. How are they going to know? You've got a complex plot. The last thing you need to do is pile on top of a complex plot, plot yeah. not explaining things or explaining it 30 minutes too late. And that's the thing, isn't it? Like you say, it's if you, you either play it as a sort of a self-serious th- thriller where you've got to work through the plot details, you know, or an Agatha Christie you know, mystery. Or it's a popcorn adventure and you need to be signposting the information so that when you get to the climax, everything's satisfying and everybody's on board. You know, it's one of the, you know, you, it's very few people that are able to mix the two. You know, very few directors are successfully able to sort of mix the two of having that sort of popcorn level enjoyment whilst having a relatively complicated plot, you know, involved. Um, you know, look at the sort of less successful Bond films where they try and make it sort of, you know, multi-layered villains and everyone goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, you you do get to the climax of some of those those plots and you say, wait a minute, why are they in Algeria again? Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, is this the only base? That I Like, I don't remember any of these key key things. And I, and I think what you're saying about, like, the, the serial approach, this, I mean, some of the convolution of the plot might just be that, you know, as a serial goes on, there's lots of chapters and there's lots of, you know, OK, then we do this, then we mm-hmm, face this, mm-hmm. you know, and the amount of information you need for any given episode should really be a couple sentences. Right. Yeah. But there might be a paragraph of additional information that was relevant might be relevant later uh but you really only need that little bit to understand the action of the next section um, yeah and you know this doesn't do a great job at, at you know walking you through that or no it needs gonna, yeah it needs a scene there's a, I mean, there's a plan setting scene at the end of this and you need someone to be you need a section to go someone to go hang on <laughs> <laughs> what's going on you need you know like um, you need um a perspective character in this because again like you say this, this film has three people that could be other than bonsai your pers- uh, perspective characters really mm-hmm. 
you know, it has um, Goldblum. Goldblum as the guy coming into the crew. It has Penny coming in as a member of the crew. Mm. But then also, as you say, the book is written from Reno's point of view. So have one of his other, the, the, you know, or you know, if you're not going to have it as, as Banzai, have it as the guy who's like the Doctor Watson of this crew, who's actually mm. journaling all this stuff. Have him be the character that's conveying a lot of this information, be the the, the point of trying to provide clarity. And doesn't have that. You've just got to accept. And I look, there's part that I do enjoy that I do kind of love that you just dropped into it and you've got to make sense of it. But like, mm-hmm. even for Bonsai, you know, even for Buckaroo, you sort of like he he's the character you're following, but you know he's not interested in conveying information. There's a lot of you know he's he's working stuff out in his head. You know he does stuff and he sort of um, so yeah. yeah. He comes off more like an Elon Musk. Who, who likes to carry a gun than, yeah. you know, Indiana Jones. And I, and I think the, you know, um, it, it misses that. Um, yeah, I mean, well, uh, the other thing is you've got this, the kid can totally mm. ask questions, right? You've also got the, the Rasta alien who is hanging <laughs> out for at least the second half, who at least could ask any questions about the crew, right? Or like, hey, Hold on a minute. You're putting the the faith of the entire world. But I mean, he know at least they know Bucker is great or whatever. Mm. um, You've got lots of, you know, your point is well made. You've got lots of people who could be asking those outsider questions. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah. So I I think, again, it's this thing of like, it feels not amateurish, but it's almost like they're trying to do something. Maybe not avant-garde, but they, they want to do something and it doesn't quite hold up in, in this sense because it requires, like, re, re, you know, you become the perspective character where you're like, hang on, I've got to go back and sort this out and, and you know, figure it all out. Um, but it could be, and again, this comes back to this thing of like, if you were to remake it, could you remake it as a TV show or could you have it as a, a film? Either or. But if you did it as a TV show, that thing of doing the banter between the crew, between the Cavaliers, can happen. You could completely have a scene between Reno and Perfect Tommy where they do discuss life on the road in the in the bus. You know, and there's there's a sort of a you give this background information. There's more texture to them as a crew. They have certain rules they have to adhere to on the road, or there has been a relationship with a Mary on the road, and you know, it's Reno's lost love. It's the one that got away or something that just gives them that bit of depth. You can have that conversation. It doesn't have to be a plot. It's just a character, a bit of character depth. But you can't do that in an hour 44 film. <laughs> it just, it's too yeah. many characters. It's not, you know, and uh, yeah. Well, so I was going to ask you, um, you know, why don't you take some time to talk about uh, the scenes or, the, or that you like the best? If you think that that, that one in the sort of I was going to say cabaret in the in the nightclub, the nightclub. Uh, is one of the worst. And and one of my great complaints is, you know, ultimately, you know, my takeaway was there's a lot here that's interesting. There's a, mm. I want to like this, but it's just not fun for me. So why don't you take some time and just talk about some of your favorite scenes and how cool they are? Uh, it, it is. It... Well, cool scenes. It's it's interesting because it's sort of there, I, I get a sense of the whole. It's one of those things that sort of like when I break it down, like I say I, I can easily pluck it apart. Things I do like is um, I like the new the the the, conf, the the sort of the press conference they give. Um, 
Uh, I think I even think the opening is quite good. I think there's moments in this film that are really good. So the opening scene, the well, the the theatrical opening scene where they, they, he does the test, he's supposed to be doing a land speed test. That's what he's told everyone it is. Um, and then he obviously is testing the, the um, oscillation overthruster. So then he diverts off and goes through a mountain. I like the fact that it's clear that like both like Tommy Rawhide and everybody in the screen know exactly what's going to happen. And obviously, you know, that they've got the, the Secretary of Defence there and these other people, and they were like, what is going on? I like that whole scene because it sort of, again, it shows that he's a bit, you know, not a loose cannon, that's the wrong word, but, like, you know, he, he only trusts within his group, and he does trust his group, and they're all to, in this together. And they get they each get, like, a little bit of a moment sort of just to show that they are a group. I, I do like that opening scene. And they've got full confidence in Buckaroo as well. Like he's charging at sort of six hundred miles an hour towards. He breaks the uh, the 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 sound barrier. Sorry, they say he's breaking the light light uh, sound barrier as he's heading towards a mountain. And so they're all, but they're all completely calm. Like they they've got complete confidence in him. So I I, I like that because this is almost before you really meet Buckaroo. Like you've not really met him yet, you know, properly. But you meet the crew around him, and you get this sense of like, well, they've got complete confidence in him. And they're willing to do all this stuff for him to make, to, to try this experiment that we know failed. If you if you you don't, but if, like according to this unaired opener, mm. like you know mm-hmm. failed thirty years before, but they've got complete confidence in this sort of thing. So I do really like the opener. It's a strong opener for me to sort of go. Oh, okay. And then when he goes through the mountain, you see the electroids, and he finds that fleshy thing on the bottom of the car. All oh, that's a really good hook for me. I'm, like, I'm in. This is weird. Like, you know, I'm, I'm liking the characters. I'm, I'm liking the, the feel of it. Um, I kind of like the press conference. There's a real naturalness to that press conference that I think is good. There's several moments where, because he, he stands up and he's got that rock and he's explaining about the different, the gaps between atoms and stuff, which is all very, very true. You know, it all makes sense. Um, and I like, but I like the fact that like, like Peggy, Peggy, sorry, Penny gets it. She she clocks it and goes, "Oh yeah, this is what it is." And then she's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry." And he's like, "No, no, no, you're right. That's." And he says he makes a really good point. He's like, "No, no, no. you know." He says, "Oh no," she says, "She says, I'm sure it's obvious to everybody." And he says, "Well, if it was obvious to everybody, we'd be doing this every day." So well done, like you know, he he, he is conveying a compliment. But then there's um, uh, Jeff Goldblum has one of the best reactions in this film. When he asks a question of the person stood next to him, and bon, uh, Buckaroo answers, and he sort of re- realizes he stood next, he's sat next to an open mic, and he's like, he he just gives a fantastic facial expression, then covers the microphone, sort of leans away from it. Um, all that is good. Like when it when there is a group, when they're acting as a group, I actually really like this film. I think there's some really good moments. The ending, I like the ending as well, when they're dotted around and they're all doing stuff. It's The only time this film starts to fall apart is actually when it focuses solely on, on Buckaroo Banzai. Um, yes, the scene with the nightclub is 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 really problematic. But again, when when the uh, Electroids invade the, um, the, the Banzai Institute, I like all that, that they break up, they split off, they're doing stuff. I like the groups that are together. You know, it all works like that. All that bit is working for me. I find I'm in. I'm invested in that. It's all good. And even I say even the ending when they actually are doing invade, invading the um, um, yo-yo dine proportion. Um, it's, it's it. I'm you know I'm invested in the the, the adventure of it um, as as a group. So there are bits I really enjoy. I think are really cool. Um, you know, 
again, when John Lithgow as Dr. Lozado is, is torturing um, Bookeroo, you know, like I'm enjoying, like I'm enjoying John Lithgow throughout all of this as well. Like John Lithgow can do no wrong, you know. I, I think he's one of those actors. Like I, I thoroughly enjoy watching him. So he provides something that sort of I think is missing from a charisma point of view in this film. Like every time he's on screen, like you say, and him and Christopher Lloyd especially in this film, know know what the you know, they get what the mission is, and so I enjoy watching them. Um, and so there's just these nuggets of things that together I just enjoy the imagination it, it, it sort of digs into my imagination and as you said it's one of those things where like as a whole I admit like there are there are flaws in this film and I fully accept why people are like no it's a piece of shit <laughs> like this film doesn't work <laughs> doesn't make sense but the, to me like it, it just caught my imagination mm. I think some of the casting is great I think some of the characters are really cool the idea of Bookaroo Bonsai is ace. It's in, in, as you said, it's one of those things. I watch this and go, "There's a really good film in here. Like there is an absolute stonker of a film in here somewhere that people would be like, you know, th- this is the thing. Th- this could be the film if they were to really into it. That is that sort of satire of." the modern superhero film you know the sort of mm-hmm. like it could do that and do it well as a sort of a satire comedy like just have to be a parody but a satire comedy that's really weird and you know falls into those tropes of, of and saying like you know yes this is how ridiculous tony stark is uh-huh. this is how ridiculous those characters are it could do that and do it well um and I, so you're right i sit there and i do rewrite this and i've got it in my head how i would do it but um, yeah, no, this one just caught my imagination. That's that's the sort of the key to it, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, I found I found myself less uh, in love with uh, you know either the invasion of the the institute. Mm. Uh, th- there's one there's one shot in particular where I mean where a barrel rolls down, you know, and it's supposed <laughs> to be a distraction, and and I thought. Why did we cut to suburban America? Like this clearly <laughs> cannot be in the and then it is, and that's just how the villains got. I mean, they're just weird things. Or diving through that the you know the escape by you know mm. I don't know. Or is that, again, because the tone isn't quite there, I don't know. Like it's like oh okay, you know we're just supposed to. I mean, I you know believe that happened and that Buckaroo dives after him because he's that that guy he's that alpha um you know of course i'm thinking yeah there's a guy at the end with a gun and (laughs) knowing you're gonna follow idiot well Um, even for some of the other films like you know i think of um cliches of like you know that towards the end of this film but that that invasion like again there are massive budget restraints on this film like you know the the electroid costumes are awful you can see the rubber seams on them and all kinds of things and how bulgy the hands are. Yeah, the <laughs> big foam gloves. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's bits in this film that like, I get what they're going for. And again, like, you know, with the, with the barrel, even with with everything in that invasion, like I can look at other films and go, oh, they've done it better. Or like you know, um, I you know I I can see this as a trope that's been done elsewhere. Um, and you say about the silliness or the what it should be the alpha. Like I think of uh, Temple of Doom. Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. The scene at the beginning in the Hong Kong um, 
restaurant where he's after the diamonds and the antidote for he's been poisoned. And it ends with him hidden behind a big gong rolling along and he dives out the window and he saves he fall the car's below. He falls into the car with short round and short round drives away and he's got blocks of wood attached to his feet so he can reach the pedals. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Yes. But Absolutely. Spielberg gives it such he, he he's got such good timing and comedy sort of like uh, affection for it that it works. You know, you know it's ridiculous, but you've also you know everything that's gone so, gone up to that point. Like it's a different, slightly different tone to Raiders, right. but it works. You accept it, and you know I think it has a polish that I think uh, it has that pulpiness that you know that I think this is missing. Like Bonds, I should go further. But again, like you know, with with um, and it, they go even further with with Last Crusade. I think Last Crusade actually does it a lot. You know, that really leans into some of the comedy moments. But does the adventure as well? Like you know, that's mm-hmm. the thing. It sort of it has the moment with the boat being smashed up by the propellers in 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 Venice. Mm-hmm. Yet it's then got the whole sort of thing of you know uh, him. Um, you know, when you introduce Sean Connery, and you get silly moments there. So it, it balances out that comedy and that adventure. And. Uh, some of that's just missing in this and i think at the end of it 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 does definitely suffer for budget but also for timing and and production polish for that final scene but again because i'm i think i've kind of invested in it previously in the film i'm sort of going in going yeah i'm I'm sort of invested in this um but i definitely see that there's massive flaws in in that bit well and i kept thinking about spielberg you know Mm. um because he's so able to do that kind of stuff um you know, which again, you know, all I mean, the other thing is Star Wars is completely over the top, but, you know, I mean, it's somehow able to convince you to go along with just the sweep of what's really fundamentally silly and doesn't make any sense. But it's the music, it's the look, it's the, you know, it's that editing and somehow, you know, Spielberg and that scene is a good example how, you know, Spielberg can make stuff that's really stupid feel like, oh, that was fast. All the lines are perfect. You know, uh, I'm totally in the vibe of that scene, even though a slightly different edited version, slightly different music, another director, it would be so groan worthy. It's not objectively the material. It's the way it's put together. Yeah. And I think the the 80s in particular were loaded with these things. So Back to the Future is another really good example. Like, Mm -hmm. Back to the Future, it, it, you know, in essence, and you and I have talked about this before. It's like you know, there are certain parts in that film that are ludicrous. Like they just yes. they shouldn't they shouldn't work. Yes, but most of the, the movie shouldn't work. Yeah, but it does. It works out. It fires at ninety five percent or something. Yeah, and it works as a whole because you've got like you say because the music, the the, the editing, the cast, the direction all holds together so when you do get to moments when you're like well that doesn't work you know that's not how that works it's sort of you go i don't care because the next scene's ace <laughs> you know right. and i don't also i don't care because i'm having so much fun yes uh i'm sold on the experience so you know asterisk noted but you know i i want to see that next fun scene uh mm. whereas with this i sort of thought okay w- Am I gonna get a fun scene? <laughs> but that was me. <laughs> yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not top tier. There's a reason that this is quite an obscure film, really. Um, but I, I, you know, I, it's. I think more than for me, it's this thing of like it. It t- taps into um, other tropes that I like. There's another film, and I'll, I'll finish off on this. There's another film from the eighties 
that tried to do something similar, tapped into a similar sort of vein. It's called Jake Bullet. Uh, no, Jake Bullet. That's uh, no Jake Speed. No, bloody, I'm gonna find it. Uh, Jake Speed, I think it's called. And it tried to do this whole pulp thing as well. It tried to tap into this idea of sort of like you know mercenary pulp heroes, like you know like Doc Savage and sort of thing, and has this big crazy adventure. And it has this. It has an odd. Again, it it fails because it has this same tonal problem. Like it has a scene really similar to Taken at the beginning. Like these two women are captured in France, in Paris. And it's really brutal. And you're like, hang on, this is supposed to be a fun romp. This is supposed to be a silly adventure. <laughs> and then like halfway through, it remembers that it's supposed to be a silly adventure and says, Oh, yeah, no, that's right. We're that we're doing this now. And it does that several times throughout the film. And again, it's the same as this. Like, there's a reason barely anyone's ever heard of that film because it just it didn't hit those marks and it didn't you know um it just doesn't gain the momentum and i think that's the same with this it's sort of most people will watch this i think the people that love it love it for the potential and for what you can get from it like you can you can re-watch it and gain so much from it and i think there are there's a silliness to it that i enjoy but yeah it's not this film is never i couldn't play you couldn't play this at a cinema you know, you couldn't do like a retrospective of Bukhari Bonsai and then pack it out. I don't think I don't think you'd have that many people come to it. I don't think it has the cachet that I think. But then Spielberg loves this film. You know, he he openly oh, yeah. referenced it in Ready Player One. So, yeah, and and you know, partially because of that, you know, I thought, well, the one thing I know is that this is going to look cool, which it does <laughs> not, and and also. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and, and also it made me think about how much more fun Ready Player One is, which I think is quite mm. a good movie. Mm. Um, you know, and, you know, not not top 10 either, but, you know, everything works despite a bunch of stupid stuff. Right? Oh, yeah, you know? the, the plot, the plot to that film is absolutely horrendous, but it's framed in a really fun it's again. It's, just, it's what Spielberg does. He can take something and he can make you sort of enjoy the ride. I think he he understands that these films are roller coasters and he'll take you on that fun ride. So he works well at that. Um, I was going to ask you uh, before we end. Uh, well, and I was going to say it's not just um, uh, old movies that do this. I mean, uh, you know, nobody that action movie recently is a good example of a movie that can't decide on its tone. That mm-hmm. is quite an enjoyable movie, but starts as a very serious, like you were saying. And then by the end, it's like we're in red territory. <laughs> you know, it's just over the top and knows it and is having fun with it. And it's still fun, but it's a different universe. And then so there are these movies that even today have these sort of weird tonal shifts. It's not something that's gone away. I was going to ask you and I want you to say before we end, um, what was your first exposure to Buckaroo Bonsai? I mean, in terms of like what this means to you, how has this been interwoven in Scott's DNA? The, when this is a university film, and I think that plays a big part, you know, in in why it's because th- this is a film that if I watched this when I was like eight again, I think I'd be sort of like it, you know, it's an eighties film. It would probably be up there higher than it is now. But I watched this in the early two thousands when I was at university. Uh, the local Odeon used to do like retro, a retro Wednesday, I think it was, a retro Thursday, whatever. But they would screen like you know retro films, and they would do all the typical ones. Like I went, I saw Jaws on the big screen, I saw Ghostbusters on the big screen, all the typical, you know, Back to the Future, The Terminator, all those. 
And then they did, they they advertised Buckaroo Banzai. And at, the, at that point, I was like, I have never heard of this film. And I thought I was a bit of a nerd. You know, I thought, I know my films. What is this? And one of the guys I played American football with said, oh, no, this film's ace. Like, we've got to go see this. Like, oh, I watched this loads when I was a kid. Like, we've got to go, we've really got to go see this. So me and a bunch of us went to, like, he, you know, he and I and a bunch of us went to see this film. And he and I came out going, yeah, that was quite good fun. And everybody else was like, that was awful. I would want my money back. Um, and so it really did split in that time. But um, at that time, it sort of hit me. And I was like, no, this, this film's weird. It, I don't understand half of what's gone on. Um, you know, it, it sort of stuck in my brain for, for after that. I never, you know, I, I, I never got it on DVD or anything like that. It was quite an obscure film. I don't think it was sort of readily available on, on DVD um in britain anyway and so i didn't watch it for years and but it always sort of sat in my brain as like yeah that was a really i enjoyed that film um, and then arrow released it on arrow video released it on blu-ray and so i picked it up pretty much straight away I was like, oh yeah brilliant <laughs> they've released it now and so i watched it and it comes with all the special features and all the bits and pieces and you know you can really sort of dig into it and so yeah, I've just I've just had it on Blu-ray since, and I just have watched it. And that. So it's just sort of stuck there. But it was just one of those films that like, I think, again, if I'd have seen it a lot, it may have been either higher up or lesser down my you know down my spectrum. But just seeing it with this enthusiasm when we were at university on the big screen as well helped sell me on this film of like no this and because of my age, I think I was really trying to sort of get into some films. So like this weird film from the eighties, I've never really heard of. Just sort of stuck in my imagination um and so i think that's a part of it that like you say it just it just hooked my imagination that there's something there i can look at it now like i said and go there's some real problems with this film however remake this film and i think you've got something really solid and i think that's you know that's where my head is at, at the moment well you've definitely sold me on that on that idea you know that there is a sort of like this is an egg, this is a watermelon egg, and there is a great movie inside that egg. Um, yeah, at least a very fun, mm. you know, enjoyable movie that could really have legs. Um, and it helps that you sort of know these intent, and you've been able to bring to this conversation, you know, the novelization and, and understanding these things. Um, yeah. So I mean, I think it. I think it also depends. Like, I have this theory that. A lot of our reception to um, especially more odd movies that that there's a sort of like tolerance that each one of us have for weirdness. Yeah. And some people don't seem to have any tolerance for it whatsoever. <laughs> and then other people have what seems to me like an over tolerance where just the idea that it's different is like so they, they wind up, you know, they love the worst aspects of David mm -hmm. Lynch. Um, and then you combine that kind of like spectrum of sort of like how much we crave the novel and the weird, which definitely is, is probably pretty high in both of us, but not at that extreme where we'll forgive anything. Mm. Um, and then you combine that with age. Right. Yes. So I can easily see that if I if I had seen this, you know, like. I mean, I probably saw this and never rented it in like those video stores where. You know, I, I combed the tape section for anything that was weird or foreign. And um, if I had seen this at that time, I'd be like, this is my special movie. Nobody yeah. knows about this. I kind of know it's a wreck, but it's also kind of brilliant. 
and it's mine, you know, and yeah. it's weird and it's not the usual dumb Hollywood thing. The, 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 there are films like that, that again, you know, that I, I have an affection for a whole bunch of films that, like, you know, I know aren't fantastic. Like, you know, there's a couple of films that, like, I'll say to people, like, you know, oh, yeah, I love this film. Would you recommend it? Oh, no. No, 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 yeah, yeah. You, you are not going to watch this film, like you know, um, you know, like you say, I, I really like Killer Clowns from Outer Space. You know, I watched that film in the early nineties when I was sort of like in my early teens, you know, early to mid teens, and again, that film struck me as being like it's weird, it's daft, it's funny. I watch it now and think, okay, like yeah, the whole third act doesn't work. The special, there's some special effects that are really bad, but I still really love that film. It's that weird little film that I love, and it, there are other films like that. And I know that people think the same of some of the trauma films, you know, like uh, uh, Toxic Avenger or Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And I quite love Killer Tomatoes. When I... Yeah, yeah. Um, so some of the, that's people, you know, those films like you hit them right. Beetlejuice is a really good example mm. of a generational thing. Well. I, I love Beetlejuice. Like, and I'm a big, I'm a early Tim Burton fan. But I also know there are people that have come to that same age as me that never saw it as a kid have come back to it in their thirties and in their early forties and just gone like, no, that's dreadful. <laughs> like that, that film's awful. Like what are you talking about? Or it's yeah, too silly. I don't silly. understand that. I mean, yeah, it, it is silly, a mess yeah. from a plot perspective, but I don't understand not being charmed by exactly. yeah that, that and, movie. And so there's you know, there are people that like that that go like, well, it's too too silly for me. I don't do silly. And you go, well, that's your lot then. That's your, that's Unfortunately, I'm pretty sure that person's watched a Marvel movie, so I don't believe that. Yeah, but they wouldn't think them as this is the this yeah. is the problem. And again, I think this is the thing like you and I, I like you know, I love that I do enjoy superhero films. I know, but again, I think you and I go into these things and know and go like, oh no no, like the idea of Thanos is daft. Yes. Like, it's really silly. Like you know, we're gonna half or the population or half the yeah. shit. You know, it, yeah, but you know, it's, it's not Chris Nolan Dark Knight. Okay, no. you know, it's not in a realistic universe. But it, it's... but it but it has it yeah, but it has a sheen of being silly. And again, like, I have problems with Thor Ragnarok, mm-hmm. but at least it leans in and goes, "Oh no, this is going to be batshit crazy." Like we, yeah. we are going to go nuts with this one. And you go, "Cool, you can do that with these films. Do it." It's a fun movie. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, it, I, I appreciate. It. So when people do sort of say, "Well, I like the Marvel films, but I don't like this," and you go, "Hmm." They're sort of in the same camp, <laughs> like you right. know, they just have a different budget and a quality. To, but you've got to acknowledge right. these things exist. And are you aware of where your silliness meter really is? Yeah, there's something else going on there. And I think, you know, where there's a bias not only in favor of Marvel, but there's also a bias against what people perceive as silly or what gets socially tagged as silly. Mm. Um, and you know what you said. You know, I mean, what you said about um, about liking movies but not recommending them, you know, is to me such a key aspect of being a good critic, you know, Mm. to know the difference between I like this. I mean, you know, sometimes I don't have a problem with, you know, the term guilty pleasures, although I don't feel guilty. Um, But it's those things that, yeah, we like. We're aware of their flaws. We can take them apart. And, you know. I don't think that everybody needs to watch every G.I. Joe and Transformers movie. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I know their flaws. I kind of love them, even if, despite their flaws. And, and you and I and you and I can see good things in these movies that that we have that affection for. 
that affection does let us see things just as it has in, in this film mm-hmm. um, that are objectively there and that aid your ability to criticize. But those things that you see don't overweigh the fact that there are, in fact, flaws. Yeah. Yeah, totally. No, no film's perfect, you know. Uh, to, uh, and again, it's, this is where, like, dedicated fandoms do my nut in. <laughs> you know, at the moment, you know, especially around superhero films, like Zack Snyder guys, you know, he's the, he's an auteur. Eh, you know, go back and watch Sucker Punch. You know, I've got real problems with that. You know, go back and watch 300. Like, he's got a real good style, but, like, you've got to acknowledge that there's some serious problems with some of these films. You know, like, same with, you know, then you go, even Spielberg, like, I'm a big, you know, I will acknowledge, like, Spielberg, you know, made some fantastic films. He also made 1941. (laughs) No, he's a master, but that doesn't mean that everything he touches is gold. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, I think that's, let's say, there are, there are a lot of films that fall into this category where I think I will say now, yeah, Buckaroo Bonzo is a favourite of mine, but it's not one I readily recommend to people. Uh, I'm glad we got to discuss it, and I'm glad you got to watch it. I'm super glad I, I, I have this reference point now, and uh, I do think it would behoove me to watch it again, but mm. I think I need a little space, you know, yes. to go back to it now knowing what to expect. Um so then my expectations have been adjusted and, you know, uh, I can can appreciate more what's there. Yeah, I think I hope we will appreciate it in the events of, like, you know, say this deserves a remake or, a you know, fine tune. Because one of the things, again, you know, maybe one day we'll talk about remakes is, like, when they endlessly remake films that were successful in the first place, you sort of oh. go, don't see the point. But if you can see a film and go, there was a nugget of something in that one. Let's go back and give that a bit of a, you know, let's see if we can pull the goodness out of that. Then you do get some excellent films. Right. Um, Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, The Fly is a really good example, actually. We've talked about that. The the Cronenberg Fly, complete reimagination, fantastic film. Often people forget that it's a remake. Um, right. Or even The Thing, which one day we will talk about, and I will defend Kurt Russell to the hilt. Sure. <laughs> well, that's fine. I mean, you know, and I, I've thought about doing the thing um but uh yeah this thing this thing about remakes you know there's this in literary theory there's this idea of like a strong misreading right Mm. and that basically like all of our ideas as critics and as artists are to one degree or another misreadings you know of the original text right Mm -hmm. so i mean you have access to you know the novel you have access to to some of these things but the movie itself is not a farce the mm. movie itself is not a punch a minute, you know, farce. But in looking at these things, we as artists or as critics are, spark things in our brain. And we say, oh, wait, that's a good idea. If you only did it this way, it would really work. Or I see the way you could hinge a plot around that. And then this and this and that would fall into place. And the truth is what we're seeing and what excites us might be, you know, 25 degrees off of what's actually really been presented and when we go mm. back and watch it we're like how did i get that you know yeah. uh, that's not really objectively there uh but we see in it this possibility and mm. that possibility attracts us yeah and i think that's what i'm dealing into especially with this film like i said there's that possibility of like you know and and like i say maybe because of what's in my head canon 
like th- I give this film an extra sort of ten percent of <laughs> you know yeah. uh, compared to someone coming to it differently. So stay um, tuned for um, Buckaroo Banzai remake starring Adam Sandler. <laughs> oh no, no! I said someone with uh, I said someone with charisma. No, no, no. Well, I'm just saying. That here's the problem with remakes, dude. Is yeah. you, know, you wish for a remake, you wish for a sequel, you don't know what you're gonna get. Yeah, no. I, yeah, that's why I want to be in charge. I don't know who would cast. I mean, the problem is you probably would get like Chris Pratt or something like that, completely again miscasting. They go, oh, you want up the action and the comedy? Right, that's Chris Pratt's thing. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm asking for. Yeah. I, I, I want someone with charisma. And I, this, this, there is someone out there. I just don't know who. If anything, I think it will end up being some quirky actor. But, you know, it, it, you still need that... Um, you you still need that charisma. You need that believability and that sort of like you know that they walk into the room and they're going to solve all the problems. Like that you know they're a safe pair of hands. Um, Not a lot of actors really do that anymore. I mean that used to be the trope, right? With all those action stars, mm. Harrison Ford, Schwarzenegger, Stallone. You know, I mean all those guys portrayed characters who were this sort of like uh, white male uh, dream. You know, I mean, there's well, this, there is a lot of privilege, right? Yeah. To this dream of like the one white male who <laughs> everything he touches is gold. One thing I would say as well, this is a final though, we didn't touch on it. It's not really, it's, it's worth noting. This is Bukaru Bonsai. His 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 uh, mother is American. His father was Japanese. Peter Weller's clearly not. <laughs> <laughs> Any Japanese name, like you, I'd open up the casting. Like you know, there's clearly someone, you know, uh, some Japanese or Asian actor. Like we could e- easily open this up. I think to have a really cool. I don't know. There's someone out there that could play Bukaru Bonsai. But anyway, final thoughts. Let's wrap up there. We're going over. So any any final thoughts on Bukaru Bonsai? Uh, well, I mean, I'm glad that I finally saw it. Um, mm. and I don't think it's a great movie, but. I do think I can see how it's influential and I can see how it's um, a sort of cultural touchstone that, you know, it's, it's certainly good to see and be aware of. And I do think that it's worth revisiting. Mm. Yeah. I'd be interested what you, if, you know, off air, we'll have a conversation at some point. If you do go back and watch it at some point, you know, if it does change your mind, having watched it multiple times, um, but yes, no. From my point of view, I do enjoy this film. I think there's a weirdness to it. I think it's, it's good to dig into it. I, I'm sort of, we, I am strangely invested in knowing sort of the the multimedia like of it. Um, so there is that. But yeah, it's a good film. I enjoy it. You know, am I going to recommend it for those that are watching along with us? I know there are several that watch the films along with us. Like you know, if you watch it, let us know. Like come, literally come and tell us what do you think. But also others out there like. If you've been a fan of this since the 80s or you've been a fan of this since um, when you saw it, let us know. Or if you've watched this and, you know, do you think it's absolute tripe and, and, you know, what are we talking about? Uh, let us know. Come find us on Twitter uh, at Pod Time Space. Go, go let us know what we, what you know, or have we missed something? What are you, what's your interpretation of the watermelon? Um, <laughs> Which that, one of you... us is right? The episodes yes. are better when we fight. So, you know, Scott, you ignorant slut. You don't know anything about movies or science fiction. I am. I'm. I'm just a Tell movie. Tell us who's whore. right. That's it. I love. I love all films. Um, 
So, yeah, but if you really like what we're doing, we like, you like what we're talking about, go to your podcast catcher and leave a review, four stars, five stars, whatever you want to do. Any review is great. What uh, gets us up those charts, gets people talking about us. And uh, if you really like what you're doing and you really like these discussions that, that Julian and I have, go check out our Patreon. That's at uh, www.patreon.com slash 20cgmedia, 20cgmedia. And even at the lowest level, even at sort of like our uh, fan level, uh, you will get Julian and I talking on a weekly basis through, we are trekking through the Twilight Zone. And uh, we, have, we are sort of on to episode nine as of the recording of this. We'll be up to about like 11 or 12, 13 by the time it goes out. So yeah, go check out um, the our Twilight Zone. And there's a load of the bonus stuff on there, a load of the benefits for being on the Patreon. It's really good stuff. Go check it out. Um, as usual, Thank you, Julian, for talking uh, uh, Buckaroo Bonzo with me. Uh, it's been my and, pleasure. Thanks for making me watch this. Uh, so I might not have loved it, but I'm glad I watched it. Yeah. Uh, well, ne- next week, or the next, sorry, next week, next episode um, is a musical episode again. And it's going to be, it's Little Shop of Horrors. Um, the Frank Oz directed uh, sci-fi horror comedy, uh, musical, lots of things. And another film that we've just I've talked about deleted scenes and alternative versions for Buckaroo Bonsai, we will definitely be talking about the alternative ending of uh, Little Shop of Horrors. So, Which you alerted me to. Yes. And this was a mutual pick. I mean, and, yes. uh, you know, uh, no quasi-straight man has ever loved musicals as much as I do. So... <laughs> I, I, this film is amazing, and so. But I would say, if you if you if you're going to watch this film along with us, or even if you're not watching, but just go and check out. It's on YouTube. You can find it on YouTube. Go and watch the alternative ending for Little Shop of Horrors. Um, it will give you a very different perspective on what the film is about, or what Frank Oz really wanted to achieve with the film. <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening along, and we shall talk to you on the next episode. streams.